everybody, and welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the podcast where good taste and bad taste collide. That's right, we are back, baby. We took a week off for reasons, and now we're back with a mega oversized, overstuffed episode full of new movie reviews. My name is William Bibiani. I'm a film critic for The Rap and Bloody Disgusting, and everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I write for IGN and some other places, if they'll have me. And they will. They will have me. It's only a matter of time. Uh, last week was a hectic one, and so is this one. November is a big deal for film critics, I don't know if everyone knows this, because every single movie studio is scrambling to show us as many movies as possible so that the movie studios can not work in December. Well, so they can not work in December, and this is the time of year when all the retrospectives begin. Mm. Uh, people start publishing their best of the year lists. People are already publishing their best of the decade lists because it's the end of a decade. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's also awards season. That is, studios... Uh, Understand that everybody has a very short memory. We're not going to remember the films from earlier in the year, so they try to put all their prestige picture at the end of the year so you remember them freshly and you're going to vote for them in all the awards. We belong to award give, uh, an award-giving body. Yep. So you belong we, to two of them. Pardon? You belong to two of them. I belong to two of them, in fact. And, yeah, I, only uh, so, got, I only got the one. So we, uh, we have to rush and scramble to see as many of these films as possible in time for voting. Yeah. And so, even then, we can't. It's there's just too many. It's just impossible to see everything you can and also do the things you need to do to do your day job. Survive to, and put food on the like, table, yeah. They're, they're, they're asking me to rush out and see a bunch of movies. This is not a problem in and of itself, but if I rush out and see all those movies, mm. I can't do the paying gigs that actually put food on the table. Yeah, yeah. So it's really hectic and manic, and it's a scheduling nightmare, and be, for weird reasons just we had hardly seen anything that had come out last week mm. because we'd seen everything that was coming out in December and we were like do we put out a disappointing episode or do we wait a week and put out a huge episode because mm. we can catch up a bit and that's what we decided to do so thank you everybody uh, for your patience and we hope you enjoyed the various other shows we had on the Critically Acclaimed Network in that time we debuted a new monthly series called The Iron List in which Whitney and I do a one long list mm-hmm. episode every month as selected by our Patreon subscribers and the first one was for the best film noirs ever and I think it was a really fun episode yeah we, we even got a few letters on, on that point um, so uh, and also of course we have our letters episodes and a whole bunch of other stuff on the Patreon as well uh, but yeah we have a lot of reviews to cover in a in Real, real fast. Mm-hmm. Here's what we got coming up on the show. What do we got coming up on the show, William? Uh, we've got Frozen 2. We've got A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. We've got Dark Waters. We've got Waves. We've got Klaus. We've got Citizen K. We've got Ford v. Ferrari. We've got Scandalous, The Untold Story of the National Enquirer. And, of course, Netflix's The Night Before Christmas. <sighs> you, The Night Before... <sighs> Yes. Okay. <laughs> at least <laughs> the, the not, night is spelled with a K. At, That's the gag. At least it's not a Hallmark Christmas movie. You didn't see any, did you? This I, week? I I actually didn't this week, but I will catch okay. up next week. Oh, good. <laughs> because I love hearing about these bland, awful movies that I'm never going to watch until you force me. I, I was bummed because there was one I was looking forward to called, uh, what was it? Uh, 
the right before Christmas, but right was spelled with a W. And I was thought it'd okay. be a good re- a double feature with the night before Christmas. R- right, like with a GH or right, just with, writing. Like writing. Like, okay, the and, right before. And I was really excited because I thought maybe it'd be about writing books or mm. something. And it's actually about writing Christmas cards. And I got kind of uh-huh. bombed and I'd, I only got like five minutes into it. And I'm like, this can wait until after the award season catch up. Could there be a, a, a Christmas themed, like, satanic panic movie called The Right Before Christmas? R I T E? Uh, that's a good idea. It's probably not for Hallmark. Why not? <laughs> Shake it up a little. The... Shock some people. <laughs> Don't think that's all. I think have that's, it, that's, that's it, Hallmark's wheelhouse. Have it's it called start... Hallmark. It's not called yeah. like New Mark. <laughs> have it. It's not Vidmark. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> See, that's it's... something Vidmark would yeah. have done. Yeah, yeah. Vidmark put out a lot of low budget horror movies mm. in like the late eighties, early nineties. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. they do Leprechaun. They they did the the American video rights for like Dead Alive. I think they did do Leprechaun. Good stuff. Um, but listen, let's get started. Uh, as as usual, there's films that we've both seen, and there's films that only one of us have seen. The biggest release of the last two uh, weeks is a movie that only Whitney got to see. So let's hmm. talk about, and Whitney's going to take well, point on this. It's one only Whitney had to see. <laughs> <laughs> Did you review it? Did you review it? I, I didn't. Well, I'm about to. No, but I mean, like, you, we both have I, to see I, everything. I, I, did, but... I did not review it in print, no. There's, okay. there's no review in print of, of okay. Frozen 2. I wanted to go see it. Mm-hmm. I wasn't able to go see it. Tell me about Frozen 2. Well, Frozen 2 is the sequel to Frozen. Oh, Frozen great review. Frozen was the second film in a proposed new wave of hip fairy tales that stopped abruptly when Frozen became as successful as it did. Pretty ironic. Uh, Tangled? There was going to be Tangled, which was Rapunzel. Mm -hmm. Then Frozen, which was the Snow Queen. Mm -hmm. The next one was going to be called... loose adaptations. Yeah, loose adaptations. And the idea was they were going to be a little bit more updated for a modern audience sort of thing. And they were going to be CGI. But they're going back to sort of the fairy tale wheelhouse. They were... Already in production on a film called Gigantic, which was going to be a Jack and the Beanstalk uh, movie. And as soon as Frozen took off as big as it did, they just put the kibosh on Gigantic. Mm-hmm. They didn't want Frozen to be part of this new trend. The new trend ended. The new trend is now, Frozen. Now Frozen is the brand. Uh, even Disney didn't know how big Frozen was going to be. And I, think I don't even, think they did. I think even they were surprised. And they kind of had to rush to meet the demands for merch on that one. And, I'm, and that's I'm, Disney. That's all they do is merch. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw... Well, well Disney had had... Hadn't had like didn't Disney had been relying on Pixar to drive their animated movies for a while. A lot yeah. of their the Disney animated stuff had been doing okay, but Pixar was the one who was really setting mm. records for all yeah, of their yeah. uh, box office up until mm. Frozen came around. I will say this: mm. I think Frozen's a great movie. I'm not so fond of Frozen. Okay. I love Tangled. Tangled. I think great. I think Tangled is excellent. I think if you had the quality of songs from Frozen in Tangled. Then Tangled would have been that that runaway thing. I agree with that, I but think, we did uh, have the quality of songs I think in Frozen. That, I think that's the, why I think yeah, Frozen is great. Fr- Frozen uh, soars with the music and the music alone. I think that it's badly told, and I don't like the characters. What are the trolls doing in there? Cut them out. No one's uh, arguing that the trolls are a good idea. The trolls, the trolls are, suck. The, tro- yeah. the trolls have this weird suck about the importance of when you're in love with someone, you have to change them. No. That's a bullshit song. Yeah. <laughs> that whole bit sucks. No, I will grant you that. But I, even when I watched it, I, uh, when I, they, she said... Sang that big barn burner a song, let it go. And uh, I, I leaned over to my wife who was in the theater with me and, and said, I, I just saw every high school girl's audition piece for theater school. <laughs> like, like it, it just had that Broadway quality and low Frozen is on Broadway. Uh, yeah, now it's time to uh, go back to the same well, Frozen 2. Um, 
I think a lot of people liked Frozen because there was no real villain. It was about a relationship between sisters. Mm, there was it there had, ultimately was revealed to be a villain, but mm. it was kind of just this third act thing, and yeah. it, ga- it was it gave the story an opportunity for closure yeah. in a way that and, it might uh, not have otherwise had. Uh, Frozen Two goes that same route. There's no real villain. There is mysterious elemental storms striking the land of Jotunheim or whatever it's called. And, oh, um, uh, Arendelle. Arendelle, yeah. that's it. Um, based on a real, uh, I think, Swedish or Finnish village. Mm. Uh, and uh, it has something to do with making the elemental spirits angry, and it all boils down to a treaty that Elsa and Anna's father was present for when he was a young boy between the Arendellians and sort of the Inuits who live even further north. So it's about political due process. It's about political due process and the bad history that that can leave behind. I mean, it's not a really... The punchiest opening for a Disney movie yeah. ever. And um, so so they have to trek into the northern climes because Elsa has magical ice powers. She's able to break through this wall of mist that's surrounding the northern climes. Mm-hmm. And they find out all about the past. Do and they leave Olaf of, the snowman in charge of the of the country? No. Who do they leave in charge of the country? They're all leaving. Who do they leave in charge of the country? <laughs> they like, just I totally forgot. They just left. left. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, fuck it. You'll figure it out. Um, Invent a democracy while we're gone. Yeah, because the opening song is a, the opening song is everything's great and nothing will ever change. You realize that this is a song about growing up and changing. <laughs> uh, this is a film about growing up and changing. And then there's the, this whole conceit that water possesses memory, so Elsa is able to freeze water in certain scenes and get flashbacks in statue form. It's a... Good in an animation sort of way. It's kind of dumb in a plot sort of way. It's all magic. All of this is kind of ballast around the real movie, which is uh, maybe three-minute song right in the middle. Uh, (laughs) Just that one song. Just that one song is the whole of the movie because everything comes alive. All of a sudden, there is wit and humor. It is hilariously filmed. The song is hilarious. Uh, I don't even remember the name of the character. Who's the guy, the owner of the reindeer? Oh, Sven. No, Sven is the reindeer. Oh, Sven is the reindeer. Yeah. You're right. Um, uh, Jonathan Groff. Let's let's call him. <laughs> That's his blazing, right? Am I crazy? Uh, yeah, I think so. All right, hang on. Like frozen. Frozen two guy. Frozen two guy. I'm googling Frozen two guy. Kristoff. <laughs> uh, Kristoff came up right away. <laughs> uh, so Elsa is off on this journey. Anna's kind of trailing on behind her saying, I need to come with you. It's too dangerous for you to go along. And that's her her entire role. And so she says, I have to go after my sister. Kristoff, you stay here. And he's like, but I had this ring. I was about to propose to you. That's what I've been trying to do this whole movie. And she says, no, you got to stay. He's like, oh, well, crap. And he looks to his reindeer and his reindeer starts singing. Because he he kind of sings for his reindeer, but we just have the reindeer singing like animated now. Is it, and then can the reindeer other, talk, or is the reindeer singing in reindeer? Singing in his head now. Ah. And he puts his finger in his ear, and he like leans up to a pine cone and starts singing one of the most spot on, hilarious boy band early two thousands music video parodies I have ever seen. Snap! That sounds great. It's awesome, and the entire theater was just complete. 
completely energized all of a sudden. It's like everybody's like, oh, yeah, that's kind of funny. The humor is kind of juvenile. The story's meandering just like the first one. And all of a sudden, just everything locks into place. Everything is perfect. Then the song ends and the movie has to conclude. Uh, I love that one number. <laughs> I love that one number more than most Disney films. I, I think it just has a kind of self-awareness and sense of humor that Disney always shoots for and usually falls short of. It sounds like um, uh, you've seen Into the Woods, right? Yes. I, I saw a, a stage version and I saw the film. Okay. So the stage version is a classic. Uh, the film, not so much. The film's pretty bad. Film's pretty actually, bad yeah. overall. Uh, however, uh, the song of the two princes. Oh, agony! Agony! <laughs> agony! Agony is, yeah. agony is uh, it's Chris Pine and who's the other guy in that one? It's some other mega hunk. No, oh, yeah, it's like Chris Pine and Charlie Hunnam or something. Some, some other handsome bloke. Uh, yeah. I'll, I'll look it up. But uh, they have the this shirt ripping, <laughs> screaming on a waterfall. Look at how handsome I am. About, uh, how, about how difficult it is to be a handsome prince. It's a really, mm. really great bit that is so much better than the rest of the movie mm. because it actually has something resembling a sense of humor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I feel like Disney is still a little bit too afraid just to tell a classic. Billy Magnuson. That was the other <laughs> That's guy. right. He's a funny guy. They, uh, they, they don't have quite enough faith in their fairy tale material anymore. They have long since lost their faith in their fairy tale material. Yeah, they can't do like, it just straight up. They can't do a straight Cinderella. It has to be either a remake of something that happened before, or they have to kind of make it a little bit hip. Well, they did that with and, the princess and the frog, and they just put it in like a different location. They yeah. set it in New Orleans. That but would work. But, That's a good but they, movie. they weren't trying to make it like kind of cool. Mm. Princess and the Frog. They, they were actually trying to do that one a little straighter. Yeah, that's true. Uh, um, yeah. It's a great movie. I love that movie. But if you recall, there was this mo- moment when they said, "Well, you know, our, our treasure planets and our home on the ranges aren't making as much money anymore. We're going full CG." And I remember there was this big scandal yeah. that they're not going to do traditional two D animation anymore. And they started doing films like Chicken Little, Bolt, and Meet the Robinsons. These films nobody likes. Mm-hmm. And uh, okay, yeah, you saw it when you were eight. I'm sure you love it. Uh, don't don't write in. <laughs> there's uh, some, some. There's nostalgia like, for anything. I think there's but, nostalgia yeah. for Bolt. For I Bolt? Think some people okay. like Bolt. I've heard some Bolt fans out All right. there. I'm but... not sure how many Meet the Robinsons or Chicken Little fans there are. Mm. Uh, Chicken Little was done by the same guy who did The Emperor's New Groove, so it's actually this big, broad slapstick thing with space aliens. Uh, it's uh, something I, when we review Klaus, this is going to remind me of something I want to talk about. All right. But yeah, but yeah they, Disney tried to go really hard in this kind of slapstick comedy Root, yeah. Rather than the fairy tales, it was, they, their, it was the two thousands version of Quack Pack, where they were just mm. trying to appeal to whatever kids liked at the time. Yeah, and and, and it was also clearly a, a very conscious effort to court a young boy audience because yeah. girls were on lock. It did not um, work. It didn't. It didn't work. And I feel like now with you know, Tangle, I think it worked, especially with the horse. Uh, that, which Maximus is just, the horse. Is the Maximus case. the horse is is. Is a better Javert than any film Javert I've seen. Ooh, um, and you're 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 comparing him to Charles Lawton. Okay, so. well maybe not Lawton. Lawton's, okay. Lawton's a good Javert, <laughs> uh, but better than Jeffrey Rush. Yes, better, definitely better than Russell Crowe. Everyone's better than Russell Crowe. Like pick anyone <laughs> in any movie, and they're better Javert yeah. than Russell Crowe. But uh, yeah, I feel like with. Frozen, especially with Frozen 2, they're creeping back in that direction where they're not letting the fairy tale 
tell the story, and they're trying to get make everybody kind of quippy and really funny. Well, they're out of fairy tale, aren't they? Didn't they just tell the yeah, damn well, story? No, I mean, yeah, they're it's, they're trying to do a sequel to their take on the Snow Prince or the Snow Queen. Yeah, but it, like there um, isn't like a sequel fairy tale. No, that, there's not. There? So they're so they're, they're pulling they're, stuff. They're out pulling of their it out of whole cloth. So there's yeah. all this. This garbage about elemental magic and earth demons well, and fire demons. it's tricky when you're telling a sequel to a story. Like, fairy tales have a beginning, middle, and an end. Like, they're very It's, it's clearly, happily ever after. Yeah, they're pretty self-contained. And I'm not saying there's never been a good Disney sequel to one of those, because I think there have been a couple, but... Has there? I'm trying to think. Um, I mean, I, I know some people like those straight-to-video Aladdin sequels. Um, yeah, those, some I, of those were cute. That's not really a fairy tale, though. Doesn't well, it's, have it's, it's, a, it's not the, the Grimm's from, from fairy the tale motif. Yeah. The Grimm's fairy tale motif Grimm's is very tales, yeah. is very cut and dry. Mm. It's very simple, straightforward. You know, it's a bedtime story. I mm. feel like you know the Aladdin it's, story was a little bit more they're, elaborate they're than that. Well, I mean, original originally a lot of those old European fairy tales are little morality plays. Exactly, but like when like the story of you know the, the Arabian Nights or a lot of those, mm. they're more like they're more like legends. Yeah, than a. Fairy tale. That may be splitting hairs, but I, I, <laughs> I, I, think, I, I think you're splitting hairs. I a played bit, a lot yeah. of the, a lot of the classic Disney animated movies, like not so much Alice in Wonderland, but you know Cinderella, Sleeping mm. Beauty. They're, they're, they have about as much dramatic structure as an Aesop's fable. Yeah, like they're pretty simple, straightforward. You can tell the entire story in about a paragraph, and everyone would mm. get it. Um, and uh, but the thing is that there was a reason they're so cut and dry. It's because they're they're straightforward. They're trying to give you a simple. Thing and Frozen mm-hmm. is a story about uh, you know sisterly love and uh, coming out of your shell and uh, obviously there's a big movement to you know accept and embrace Frozen as the closest thing Disney's ever done to a forthrightly gay storyline. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then yeah, if, what's, if, what's if, left? If, you have political they... pacts. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, like well, it, diplomacy. It, That's what we need to go it, for. It, it turns out it, it had to do something with their wicked grandfather, who is long since dead, and um, that's that's not revealing too much. Okay, uh, but yeah, it is about sort of uh, the legacy of royalty, which mm. is an interesting comment, but they don't really hammer on it too much. Uh, inst- instead, they go for the silly route. I think it's not as epic or as as emotional, or and none of the songs are quite as barn burnery as the first one, except for Lost in the Woods, uh, which is better than Let It Go. Oh, and wow. I, I'm going to be the only person in the world who says that, but I, I stand by it. Okay. So, uh, so in the end, uh-huh. you're, okay. So, it largely, except for that one bit, yeah, inferior to Frozen, which you weren't the biggest fan of in the first place. Well, I, I is actually, it still good though? It's like worth taking your kids. I, to? I, li- I, I, I like it better than the first Frozen. Oh, really? Overall, just because. Uh, okay, it was it, not it has, getting that vibe at all from. It, well, it, just because. Well, hear me talk about the first Frozen. I'll be even more negative. Okay. Um, I think the first Frozen is very badly structured. I think there's a lot of unnecessary weight all over that movie. It could be. Trimmed down to maybe a nice, uh, nice peppy sixty-five minutes, and it'd be just as strong. Keep all the songs in there, and like all of this dead weight at the beginning, all of the trolls. There's all this extra stuff in it that just doesn't need, and yeah. weighs it down. and makes it really kind of dull to watch. Um, Frozen Two, uh, about the same length, but it seems to move. There's a lot more in it, um, the, and some of the jokes at least land. Hmm. And there's a weird, kind of almost a bizarre energy to it. It's like uh, when I saw. Uh, Toy Story 4, I realized that this is the strangest one in the series, and it's got a lot of really bizarre jokes for grown-ups. And I feel that that's a, that, that's a little bit of the flavor that's going on with uh, Frozen 2. Interesting. There's like a, a little bit more manicness to it that make it 
stand a little bit higher than the first Frozen. Fair enough. Well, let's move on uh, because there's actually a good segue here mm-hmm. between Frozen 2 and Klaus. Okay. Because they're both... Uh, mm-hmm. uh, Icy animated um, films. And they both make explicit reference to... Let me look it up. I think it's the Sami people. Okay. Um, the Sami are like a, a tribe of the northern climes. They're, I think, I think from northern Finland. Okay. And uh, in Klaus, there's people who speak the Sami language. In uh, Frozen 2, it's just sort of styled after the Sami, and they get a credit, uh, like, special thanks to the Sami Oh, people. that's cool. Yeah. Um, so Klaus is a new animated film uh, that is on Netflix. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say it right now. Damn shame we couldn't see this movie in a theater. Uh, yeah. This is a really pretty movie. It was directed uh, by Sergio Pablos. Sergio Pablos has worked on a lot of Disney movies. It's probably best known these days for the Despicable Me films. Yep, but, uh, you know, you will also... It's actually interesting. I was watching this movie, and the protagonist of this movie is voiced by Jason Schwartzman. And I was one scene into the movie mm-hmm. when I turned to uh, my wife and partner, Michelle, and I just say, he's animated just like Dr. Doppler from Treasure Planet. Uh-huh. Turns out Sergio Pablos was the lead animator on that character. <laughs> and you, so it makes perfect sense. So you look at the body language of all the mm-hmm. characters in this movie, and this is a guy who worked as a character designer on a goofy movie. And uh, also mm. Treasure Planet, and you can see like that level yeah. of energetic because there's a lot of CG animated movies that do not have energetic character animation. They do not have this broadly, mm. uh, you know, classically cartoonish yeah, we've... character acting mm. and. Klaus has it everywhere, and it, it's so full of personality and life, yeah, and it yeah. just really pops. There's, um, we talked about this before, when uh, uh, Gendy Tartakovsky made uh, Hotel Transylvania. Ah, he, he complained that CG was very limiting because when you're doing CG animation correctly, it's like working with puppets. They can only stretch so far. They're trying to make them yeah. look as realistic as possible, which means they're essentially always on model, to use a, an animation term. Mm-hmm. Which means, uh, which is, which as far as animation goes, might as well mean rigid. Yeah, they look exactly like they do on on the design sheet yeah, and never beyond that. You're kind of not taking advantage yeah. of the various possibilities of the medium at that point. And, it was his the, argument. And Gendy Tartakovsky tried as hard as he could, and I think he was successful with Hotel Transylvania, to break those rules. He was trying to make them not puppets, mm-hmm. maybe in some scenes, but he was trying to like stretch them and mutate his characters in ways that we don't ordinarily see in CG. Yeah. Uh, those movies are really fun. Especially I, the first I, I one. I never saw the third, but those first two are quite good. The third one's funny. I mean, they, they start losing, you know, steam story-wise, but they're funny. Yeah, they're, uh, they're really hilarious. They're manic. Anyway, back to Klaus, but, which but has Klaus, that energy. Klaus yeah. has that energy because it has something I... I didn't realize how badly I had been missing it until I saw it again. It's all hand-drawn. It's colored with computers, but all the characters are done by hand. And, yeah, because of that, all of the characters are constantly moving and re-expressing themselves and are constantly off-model. And, uh, yeah, just, just way, way more expressive than you see in your average CG film. Um, so, the plot of the Klaus... Mm. As you might guess from the title or from, like, the thumbnails on Netflix, it's about Santa. Mm. However, I I love this. I love this bit. 
when you know where a movie is going, like here's you know a general sense of what the plot is. Mm. But then the first scene comes up and you have no idea how you're going to get from A to B. <laughs> you have no idea how the hell you're going to get there. Uh-huh. The first like half hour of this, you'd never know it was a Christmas movie. Like you'd never fucking know. Yeah, yeah. So it's about um and and the first half of it, in fact most of it is incredibly bitter. It's a it's kind of a mean-spirited film and I really love that. Mm. It's a Christmas film that starts with this, such a, a cynical sense of humor. So uh it is about a shiftless layabout Jasper. A guy named Jasper played by Jason Schwartzman and a team of animators obviously. Uh and uh his father runs the post office in their country and he's supposed to go into the family business but he's a shiftless layabout and he can't learn anything and he doesn't care and he's really lazy. Sabotages every job opportunity he's given, yeah. doesn't go to school. And so dad finally gives him, dad finally gives him an ultimatum. You're going to go to a town that was at Smearenburg. Smearn that is it's Smearnburg Smearnsburg Smearn oh th- there you go Smearnsburg he goes to this tiny town of Smearnsburg and he is told that you need to deliver six thousand letters or packages in a year and if you can do that mm. you will become part of the family again and inherit your vast fortune and if you can't well good you're, news you're, you're a post office you're a postal worker in Smearnsburg so he is really committed. To just delivering as many packages as possible. Problem is, Smearnsburg sucks. Smearnsburg makes makes a Dickens orphanage look like a playground. Smearnsburg is like the dark mirror version of the town from Popeye the movie. There you it's go. It's like really elaborate. It's full of shanties. Everything looks like it's falling apart. Everyone's a really broadly drawn character archetype. And, and uh, also, everyone hates each other. There's the a, opening... a Hanfield and McCoy type rivalry going on in Smearnsburg. He goes half to... of the town hates the other half. He goes to Smearnsburg... And he expects some sort of warm reception, and someone plays a prank on him and says, oh yeah, just ring that bell. Everyone probably just forgot you were coming today. So he rings the bell, and all of a sudden it's gangs of New York. Evidently that's that's the battle bell. You ring that bell, everyone just knows to come and fight, and then they do. And uh, the problem is, no one wants to send any mail, because everyone hates each other, and no one cares about each other. That's it. That's yeah. his problem. Now, luckily, he happens to know of uh, the location of a mysterious mountain man. Yeah. Big, scary mountainous man with a big, long, white beard. And he figures this guy's in makes, isolation. Who, who lives in his house and makes, makes toys. toys. Yeah, he figures this guy lives in isolation. <laughs> he might be interested in letters. And he ends up accidentally dropping... Like a note from a kid that he was trying to scam into buying postage for like a piece of art he'd drawn. And this guy, Klaus, realizes that this kid is unhappy and he wants to deliver a toy. Mm. And so he sends the postal worker in and the postal worker needs to like climb through a chimney in order to get there. And sure enough, a toy is there. And now all these other kids are just like, can we send a letter to Klaus and get a toy? And he says, well, if you pay for postage, yeah. (laughs) And then slowly but surely, little elements of the Santa myth start popping up kind of organically. Like Mm. there's one kid who was really, really mean. Very organically. I was so, so grateful. I really, really like how like sometime like he couldn't like sneak into a house properly so he just had to throw some stuff in socks and that's when people started putting socks <laughs> on the thing or uh, there's like a really mean kid a kid who like spit on him uh-huh. as he came into town so when he like was about to deliver the toy to that kid he just gave him coal because screw 
that kid. Out of spite, yeah. And when the kid says, oh, Santa doesn't, Santa's not real. This guy isn't real. He didn't bring me a toy. No, he only gives toys to nice kids. Oh. That's not the rule. How would he know? Because he sees everything. <laughs> so all of the Santa myths about like sort of warmth and kindness and gift exchange are all born of spite, hate, and cynicism. What a wonderful idea that yet, secular Christmas comes from such a dark place based in rivalry and hate. And yet, and yet, even though it, it stems from capitalistic need, he wants to make money. That's the only reason he's doing this. He ends up accidentally doing a good thing. And well, people like, start being nicer to each other and uh, being more neighborly. K- kids are really bugging him. He's like, well, there is a school here, right? Yeah, but the school teacher doesn't do her job. She's trying to sell fish out of the school because no one wants to send their kids to the same school as the other jerks in town and these kids are like well we want to send a letter to this klaus guy but we don't know how to write so he shoves them into the school so they can learn how to write letters by posting the fish market and of course the the really grumpy fishmonger (laughs) slash teachers like fine i'll teach you can i teach you how to write your name fine here's your name okay now write right fucking okay you know what i need more pencils (laughs) (laughs) You and know slowly it, but surely the, the school reopens. It reminded me of uh, actually The Postman, the Kevin Costner movie, which is based <laughs> off of actually a, a quite good sci-fi novel mm. in which – if you haven't seen the movie, first mm-hmm. off, it's hilarious. Yeah. It is taken so seriously. It is one of the biggest love notes any filmmaker has ever written to themselves. Mm-hmm. It's just making Kevin Costner look good. That's the whole movie. It's three hours of it. <coughs> it's amazing. But the premise is actually kind of neat. It's a post-apocalyptic world. Everything is uh, falling apart. Mm-hmm. And Kevin Costner uh, just finds the corpse of a postal worker, steals the clothes, because he needs the mm-hmm. clothes for, for warmth, and he steals the bag of letters and just starts telling people. Start delivering them. Yeah, he starts telling people, like, oh, yeah, there's a government in Washington, D.C., and we're just getting rid of all of our backlog of letters and just throwing it out there. And he ends up accidentally inspiring people to put civilization back together. Mm-hmm. Neat idea. Neat idea. Yeah. Klaus it's, actually does it really well. Kla- Klaus, oh gosh, I am I am in awe of this film because it it's it's a Christmas film that makes you feel really warm when you're not expecting it to. Mm. And I think this is something that came out of the Despicable Me movies as well. I think the original script, I suspect that the scripts for the original Despicable Me uh, films were probably a lot more, like a lot darker and a lot more cynical. Like he probably murdered people in the original and they tried to, to scale it back a little bit. And now everybody just thinks of those minions and they think of like little cutesy critters. You do realize that the minions are following a biological urge to insist, to ensure that evil persists. Yeah. They, they follow <laughs> the most evil people they can mm. find. My favorite bit of writing in a kid's movie in the last few years, like this sort of bending over backwards to avoid a conversation mm. is the part in the movie minions where we see the minions and they're like, they're following Napoleon or they're following Dracula. And mm. then they are conveniently locked in a cave throughout mm. world war two. Yeah. yeah. And the reason why is because if they weren't, you would have to explain why they weren't following Hitler. Uh-huh. Because that's what they would do. Well, it's I, I get it. You do I not want to like, have that conversation, yeah. but you invented their backstory. They don't have to follow the most evil people in the world. They don't. You made that up. You can just <laughs> unmake that up. You invented that for the movie Minions. It's not like it was in the first Despicable no. Me and you had to stick with it. Just don't. 
don't say or, that, or, and then you don't have to deal with World War II. Or say that and make, like, tasteless jokes about it. Well, you're like, like, it's you're a like, kid's movie. You don't want to be too tasteless. Well, uh, you know, a Mel Brooks-level joke about Hitler. I, I Mel, honestly think it's a conversation we don't want to have. I, I suppose not. It is a kid film. Just I, make I, it a little less kid-friendly. I sympathize with their solution to the problem. My mm. point is it's a problem they invented for themselves. That's true. That's my problem. Like, it's it's fine. I, I it's fine. Like, the Minions movie is cute. Yeah, I, I had a fun time. I feel like with Klaus, they were a little more unbound, so they were free to make that town as unpleasant as they possibly could. And the yeah. movie I thought of uh, more than any was The Box Trolls. Yeah! Which good was point. A, yeah. another film that takes place in this greasy world of death and filth. And yet, it's really kind of cheerful. Yeah, it's about pl- it's playfully mm. gross. Yeah, yeah. The the, the two lead kids, the, those, oh, so good. The, these sick little freaks. I love those kids. E- everyone was talking because Leica came out, and uh, you know, th- I feel like the heat has gone down on Leica a little bit. Their mm. last two movies didn't really make a big yeah, impact. Missing Link and Kubo weren't, weren't like Kubo was cool, but it, mm. there were some issues with its portrayal of you know, do we need to cast exclusively white actors for the main roles? I don't know. Mm. Uh, but yeah, oh, supporting roles fine, but the main roles really. Um, and Missing Link just didn't make much of an impact but they're like first three films Coraline Paranorman. and Paranorman yeah. those were two huge films and I feel like people kind of slept on Box Trolls Box Trolls is so good Box Trolls is great <laughs> Box Trolls is funky and weird and just ah it, it, it's it's a worthy successful to, successor to Roald Dahl yes the Box Trolls good yeah. point I like that a lot <laughs> Um, but yeah, Klaus is it's it's gorgeously presented. Mm. Um, it's pretty damn magical in a way that I haven't seen an animated movie for kids be in a bit. Mm-hmm. Like it, I think it's magical because it acknowledges that cynicism exists and it overcomes it, as opposed to pretending cynicism isn't real. Yeah, yeah. which is something that I think early Disney films understood. Like Pinocchio is full of threat. Yeah, you know, Cinderella is full of threat. Mm. Uh, not so much some of the later films. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah, I think Klaus is it might be my pick for the best animated movie of the year. Like I wasn't high on Toy Story four. I, I, Lego two is neat, mm-hmm. but I didn't love it. I'm trying to think if there's anything else that I, there's a couple of indies I haven't seen yet. Yeah, but uh, it, like. Like Funan was heartbreaking, but I, I feel like it's a slightly different kind of entity. Yeah. Uh, it, yeah. No, it, it's it, it's a it's a wonderful Christmas movie. It's just a wonderful movie all around. It's yeah. just so bright and charming and so exciting to look at. There, you won't see another animated film that looks like it. Not quite. Uh, no. The, the character design is unique. The color is unique. I, don't, I haven't seen any film that sort of has this kind of. It's almost like a. a quilt of pastels like this weird clash of pastel colors that's yeah. just really appealing to the eye i love it that's great i loved it a lot and 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 because it's on netflix a lot of people have easy access to it mm-hmm. if you're avoiding it because it looks like just another christmas movie if you're avoiding it because it looks like a kiddie movie like you know movie exclusively for kids uh you you need to check yourself before you you wreck yourself <laughs> and your capacity for experiencing mm-hmm. klaus Probably shouldn't have used that phrase. My point is, it's really good and see Klaus regardless of what age demographic you're in. It's mm. a, it's one of the better films of its kind in a really, really long time. Yeah. yeah. Um, so let's move on. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk about, uh, while we're on the subject of kids stuff, let's talk about A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, which I also have not mm. yet seen. I will. Okay. Um, uh, everyone's talking about it. It's a yeah. big deal. It's considered a big Oscar contender. Uh, well, it's considered a big Oscar contender just because... 
it's it's a I'm biography. talking about the hype. The hype. Yeah, I'm not, yeah, I'm yeah. Not, that's not a, that's not a qualifier. That's not saying it's good or bad. It's mm. just people are talking about it. Yeah. So let's talk about it. Uh, this is a film directed by Mariel Heller, who most recently did uh, "Can You Ever Forgive Me," a film I really loved. Um, it's a film that hit me a little like I, it's close enough to home that I actually kind of didn't enjoy it, but mm. I think it's because the movie was good. Okay. So I respect it, but I didn't love it. Still definitely Melissa McCarthy's best performance. uh, That's probably fair. And Richard E. Grant gives another great performance and a career full of them. Yeah. Uh, This one is a biography of Fred Rogers, a.k.a. Mr. Rogers. Hmm. Um, Who had a neighborhood once. (laughs) But um, it's not really about Fred Rogers, unfortunately. Oh, it's one of those. It's one of those where it's about the reporter from Esquire who has been assigned to write a a biography of Fred Rogers. Here's me in the development studio Mm -hmm. getting the script for a movie that's a biography of Fred Rogers told from the perspective of literally anyone but Fred Rogers. Mm Pass. <laughs> just throwing it away. Like I yeah, just, I, um, I hate that kind of document, that biopic, well, where it's actually about the person who knew them. Like, there's a couple of good examples of that. I think well, uh, Gods uh, and Monsters did it well because mm-hmm. it was from the perspective of someone who well, wouldn't like on, him. Uh, but, Amadeus, for goodness' sake. But yeah, well, I think Amadeus is as much a biopic about Salieri as it is about Amadeus. That's true. Um, they, uh, they didn't invent. Like, mm-hmm. I'm not saying they invented this guy, but like, they didn't like have to give more importance to Salieri. Mm-hmm. Like, they just sort of. No, well, I mean, um, they kind of do. Okay, that made me uh, Because of la- the documentary made last year, which was called uh, Won't You Be My Neighbor, mm. uh, we are all sort of re-familiarized ourselves with Fred Rogers if we weren't already intimately connected with him already. Um, most Fred Rogers was been doing his show since the 1960s, 70s? I think, yeah, like, long, a long, 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 time. long time ago. And, uh, it was all when I was a kid. He had a very uh, solid... <sighs> philosophy that he lived by and tried to preach every single day that we need to be more cognizant and more conversational about the way we feel and be aware of the way other people feel and actually live a life of openness, calm, and compassion. And mm-hmm. he tried to live the best Christian life he could. And he was, he was keenly aware yeah. that, like, there was a decent chance that his show, mm. for some kids, might be the only calm and compassion they had that day. Yeah. And yeah, he yeah. took that very, very seriously. Yeah, and he took it very seriously. He, he lived by it to such a degree that uh, Matt Vogel, the reporter character, uh, can't believe that... Uh, he is completely without guile. That there's got to be something beneath, like lurking beneath the surface yeah. of Fred Rogers. This has got to be an yeah. act of some yeah. kind. Yeah. I think anybody who's familiar with Fred Rogers can tell that there's no act there. Just his authenticity comes right off of well, him. That was like, the appeal. That, yeah, exactly. He didn't seem like he was faking it. And we already got also that we also got that from the documentary film that his his need to be compassionate was completely authentic. Uh, and so the film is about how he has to come to terms with the fact that there is such thing as an authentic person, and Fred Rogers is that person. Meanwhile, Chris Cooper plays his estranged dad who's dying of cancer. Wait, Fred Rogers is his, uh, No, uh, the reporter's father. Pass. And, uh, and he has... 
he, I mean, he that's has, sad. Don't get has, me wrong. I'm sure a, that's a true story, a, but it's, it's a, not, I'm here for Fred he has, Rogers. He has a baby and a wife. Yeah, Fred Rogers isn't in it a whole lot. Oh, come on. So we spend a lot of time going to the hospital and arguing with the wife oh. and figuring out, you know. Who, who, how he's going to write this piece, and it's supposed to be short, but then it goes to be long. Is it brilliant? Like, do you end up caring about this guy more than Fred Rogers? By definitely the not. In Damn fact, it. I think he's really kind of annoying, and I think that's kind of the big, the biggest failing of the movie. <sighs> Having a structure based around somebody who's writing a portrait of Fred Rogers, I guess, is a good way to make it interesting because Fred Rogers is so without guile. If you're going to just sort of tell the straightforward story, you're not going to get those traditional Hollywood beats of, you know, the fall and the rise and the struggles and the addictions and the womanizing. <laughs> There's none of that in Fred Rogers' life. <laughs> that would be funny. Yeah. That would be funny. I'm not tur- lie. Turns out Fred Rogers was, oh, was on smack that whole time. No, Fred Rogers is Fred Rogers. He's, he's, Fred I'm Rogers to... had his car stolen once. Oh, okay. From in front of his building. And he went, and it went out. It's like, well, he got on TV. Well, it turns out my car was stolen, and some people just take things that aren't that don't belong to them. The thieves saw that episode, and they returned his car because it was his, with a note on it saying, "We're sorry. If we knew it was yours, we wouldn't have touched it." Like, <laughs> <laughs> he's like the Godfather, but he won't do anything to you. He's, Everyone's yeah. just like, "Oh shit! Don't steal from Fred Rogers." Holy, what are you nuts? Not because what he's are you a monster. Kill you, just because he's the nicest man in the world. Like we all have a certain amount of respect so, for Fred Rogers. I mean, come on. There's not going to be any inherent <laughs> drama to Fred Rogers' life. So, yeah, okay, making it from uh, from the perspective of somebody next to him. Here's the thing that is I wanted... a good enough idea, I suppose. You brought up Amadeus. Okay. Okay, and I was and I was wrong when I said that they didn't like have to inflate Salieri because by all accounts Salieri didn't hate Mozart at least not no they, they changed they, a lot they changed movie. a lot of it but Salieri was a real historical figure and mm-hmm. so it made sense to put them next to each other because they were contemporaries and you could create a contrast and then like that contrast just blew up dramatically a, a part of me wants to and again I didn't see this movie mm-hmm. but like what's the pitch here like how do we fix it and I'm imagining myself as like the studio executive from the Majestic who ruins everything <laughs> by making it like Listen, there's gotta be a heroic bigger, dog bigger. in the movie I yeah. don't want a heroic dog but if we're gonna do the Fred Rogers story and like okay well we can't just do the Fred Rogers story because there's not enough conflict and it's not really satisfying dramatically but we do want to put someone next to Fred Rogers to show just how great Fred Rogers is mm. instead of just putting some guy who's a little cynical mm. What if we find, like, the worst person we know Fred Rogers actually met? Like, I'm trying to think of, like, who, like, well, did he ever, like, spend a day with, like, George H.W. Bush? You know, where it was just, like, this two, yeah. like, weirdly like, diametrically like a, you want people. You want, like, a walk and talk picture of Fred Rogers and, like, just some evil person. Well, I mean, I'm not going to call it George H.W. Bush evil but mm. like they don't stand well, I mean, that, for the but same that, that's, thing that's like, your angle yeah that's yeah. my angle okay. like can we like ha- did fred rogers ever meet nixon can we do <laughs> instead of frost nixon rogers nixon rogers nixon i would pay the fuck to oh see that God. i would pay so much money to mm. see like a one-act play of mm. fred rogers meeting richard nixon Somebody after like- watergate <laughs> i want to see that like some some who is more changed? president who has changed at the end of that Mm. They can't. They both have to be slightly different people at the end of that mm. long conversation, where they're just they're on a plane. <laughs> they're both first class. They just mm. they're sitting next to each other and they're stuck together for like six hours. 
I want to hear that conversation. That would have been great. And evidently, and this is in in uh, the film, uh, Fred Rogers would bring out his puppets to people who came to interview him. Aww. But then he would he would put the puppets on and try to interview from the perspective of a puppet <laughs> and would end up kind of like analyzing his interviewer. And that's something that the, this Vogel character that's kind sweet. of resents. So he's like looking Daniel Tiger straight in the eye. And of course... Of course you see Daniel Tiger and your heart starts fluttering and you start crying just because you saw a puppet. All right, Daniel Tiger was my favorite. I'm not going to (laughs) lie. Don't watch Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood, the new animated show. Oh, no. Where the characters in the land of make-believe are all older now and they're grown up and they have kids of their own. No, pass. (laughs) Pass. No interest. It's called Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood. It's on PBS Kids. Oh, is it good, Uh, though? It's it's very respectful. That's It's it's not. it, It doesn't feel too toy. You know? Okay. Um, Tom Hanks plays Fred Rogers, and he does a fine job. He mm. doesn't look or sound anything like Mr. Rogers, and I think uh, Tom Hanks has a little bit too much of a twinkle in his eye. This is why he's good in films like The Burbs. He's actually able to handle like kind of darker or sillier or weirder material. This is why it was so good in Big. Yeah. Because there's a lot of twisted crap going on in Big. Like not, and you don't have to think too hard. There's some twisted no, no, crap going try, on Try in watching Big. Big from the perspective of Josh's mom. Yeah, it's like a terrorist story. It's, it's a awful. terrifying story. This, her, her son is kidnapped. This is all, this is all that she knows. Mm. Her son is mysteriously kidnapped by a strange man who looks like the guy from Bosom Buddies. Who was in her house. Who was in her house. Telling her creepy things about, I'm your son now. And you're like, ah! And she tries to attack him with a knife. And then he runs away. And then for months, she gets letters from her son talking very vaguely about how they're treating me well. Mm-hmm. They say they're not done with me yet. The cops are leading nowhere. Uh-huh. All right? like, And then all of a sudden, months later, no explanation, her son returns wearing clothes that are twice his size. Wearing adult clothing. And he has, there's two possibilities. Mm-hmm. Either he told her exactly what happened and she thinks he, he's too traumatized to understand what actually happened to him and he goes into therapy for the rest of his life and she never knows the real answer and she lives a life of tortured misery. Or he never tells her and then she never has closure for the rest of her life until 15 years later she realizes her son looks like Tom Hanks. Mm. What the fuck kind of nightmare is that? Can you imagine? I'd love to see Big Two, yeah. a sequel where she gets to see, what was his name, Josh. Josh grows up. I did an article for Bloody Disgusting that was talking about the horror history of Tom Hanks because mm. he's seen as just like nice guy actor. But he's, mm. he's dabbled in the horror genre. He directed an episode of Tales of yeah. the Crypt, for mm. example. And it's, um, pre- it's pretty good. It's it's fine. It's not one of the better episodes, but it's fine. Actually, like Schwarzenegger's episode better than <laughs> Tom Hanks. That's yeah. great. Uh, but uh, yeah, so... I wrote an article and, and playfully hmm. I included big. Okay. <laughs> because if you it really don't have to turn your head too hard to yeah. see it as a horror movie. Mm. And someone just kept tweeting at me today, just like, you should not have put big on there. I'm like, I know. <laughs> it's a joke. It's, it's a joke. Tongue cheek. It's, 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 I'm trying to be like, it, I put it in there and like, they could have taken it out. Mm. <laughs> like, they, they could have uh, taken that out if they didn't like it, but they thought that was, it's kind mm. of funny. It's, he, he dabbled. Mm. My, anyway. my point being, uh, Tom Hanks is a, is a fine choice, but I think he has a little bit too too much going on as an actor to mm. really convey Fred Rogers exactly the way he was. And 
I can only say that because everybody knows exactly the way he was. We yeah. know the way he looked. We know the way he spoke. We're very intimately the, the, familiar what, with him. He, we invited Tom, him into our house. What Tom Hanks does absolutely right is all of the vocal intonations. He knows exactly how he, how Fred Rogers spoke. It was very quiet and very well-spoken, thought about what he said, used very simple words. And in a few scenes, you can you can kind of see it happening. Yeah. But it, it sadly is not one of those kind of explosive performances where you realize, oh gosh, he recreated Fred Rogers. You know, I'm actually fine with that. I think a lot of my favorite like performances of real life people mm-hmm. capture sort of the essence of them without being mimicry. Like yeah. uh, Jim Carrey in Man on the Moon. He's not Andy Kaufman. You would never, yeah, that's if true. they were in a lineup, you would never confuse one for the other. But uh, the, the, he captured the spirit yeah. right. And the, I think that's fine. The one I like is Chadwick Boseman as James Brown. Oh, great example. Yeah. Great who, example. Who, uh, yeah, I mean, nobody's James Brown, but James Brown. But right. Ch- Chadwick Boseman. In uh, Get On Up, which in, is a yeah, really get, underrated get on, movie. Get On Up is quite good. Uh, and yeah, he gets this weird kind of wildness to the character that I think is is the most important thing, even yeah. if he doesn't look and sound exactly like James Brown. Yeah, that's how I felt, too. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so, but overall, it's a, kind of a mixed bag. It's kind, it... kind of a mixed bag. Uh, like, it, it feels like it should be this big, important Oscar contender, but we spend so much time with this ab- abrasive character that it kind of pushes you out after a while. Oh, that's too bad. Mm-hmm. All right, well, let's talk about, uh, let's talk about another, uh, based on a true story. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one is about uh, waters, dark waters, <laughs> which sounds like the title. Wasn't that the title of like a, a J horror remake from it was. the early two thousands? It might have been just Dark Water, but dark yeah, water, yeah, with uh, I think Jennifer Connelly was in that it was one, in the American version. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this has nothing to do with that. This is a new film from Todd Haynes, which is a weird choice for Todd Haynes. Todd Haynes has previously done a really kind of. Turmoil-centric domestic dramas. Yeah, he did a, often period pieces, but not always. Yeah, he did. Uh, he did Carol, was probably mm. his most celebrated work overall. He did Far from Heaven, I, which I, was I think Far from Heaven is his most celebrated work. Well, he also, what, whatever. He also did movies like Poison, which was a queer romance, and he did Safe, which is a really wonderful film about hysteria and modern chemicals. If you ever get a chance uh, to see his first film, uh, Superstar: The Karen Carpenter Story, uh, whew, they are not allowed to show it. Because he made it on his own. It is a biopic about Karen Carpenter, who, of course, uh, suffered. For, uh, was a brilliant mm. singer, but suffered from an eating disorder, died too young. Uh, and he did a biopic about her life told mm. entirely with Barbie dolls. Yeah. And because he used the actual Carpenter's music, they sued because it's not a flattering portrayal of the family. Mm. And now, mm. like, you can only see it in bootlegs or, like, at a mm. museum. Yeah. Like, that's the only two places you're allowed to see this movie. It's a great movie. It is a great movie. It's, it's you know, gimmicky, but it works. Yeah. So, anyway. Uh, anyway, Todd, Todd Haynes is a brilliant director. He's, he is a brilliant director. I've liked, uh, I guess, all of his films so far. I, I've never yeah, seen yeah, one I didn't yeah. like. I've never he's seen, like, done, a bad one. I've loved yeah. some, not been kind of cold on others. But. He's done a few uh, really unconventional biographies. He did I'm Not There, which was the Bob Dylan biography where he got I a bunch... that was him. That was You're him, right. and he got a bunch of different actors to play Bob Dylan and never referred to the character as Bob Dylan. It's always like these different personas that came out of his music. It was this weird kind of multifaceted me- meditation on was the it, characters. Was Kate Blanchett nominated for an Oscar for She that? was. Yeah, for, for playing, playing Bob for Dylan. For playing Bob, one of the Bob Dylans. Awesome. Uh, he also did... and. 
you could argue with me if this is a biography, but he also did Velvet Goldmine, which uh, it, it kind of is. It's 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 Iggy Pop and Mick Jagger and, and, Bowie. and Bowie, all kind of okay, t- taken apart and okay. remixed a little bit. If you've never seen Velvet Goldmine. Mm. Stop the podcast. And you know, I hope you know by now that when I say stop the podcast, I mean it because you're about to see something amazing. Velvet Goldmine is pretty brilliant. Stop the podcast. Velvet Goldmine Mm -hmm. is a, I'm actually going to call it, it's a remake of Citizen Kane if Charles Foster Kane was an amalgamation of Iggy Pop and David Bowie. Yeah. And it's got great music Mm -hmm. and it's really energetic and exciting and wonderful and. Yeah, it and, should have a way bigger cult than it currently and, has, and it has yeah. a decent cult right now. It's got a, it, it plays the Midnight Circuit occasionally. Uh, it's gay with an exclamation point, which I adore. <laughs> uh, yeah, he he when he go, does these biographies, he's always looking for kind of a mood piece that captures the time or the character of something. So now we have another biography. This time about what is the name of the, the oh the, he's the got a weird name. Um, it's played by Mark Ruffalo, who also yeah. produced the film. Apparently, it's uh, important mm. to him. Um, this is a story about uh, his, name, his the, name is Robert Billet, and, yeah. uh, and he is Robert Billet, real lawyer who worked for a defense company that defended like gigantic corporations. However, on this one weird occasion, because uh, he grew up in a small town in West Virginia, the small town in West Virginia had become the victim of a chemical dumping scandal. Uh, from DuPont, who had been making Teflon at a nearby uh, factory. They'd been dumping their Teflon and their Teflon runoff into their water supply, poisoning everyone, killing cattle. Turns out Teflon is one of the worst things uh, humanity has ever created. It's uh, it's what they call a, a forever chemical. That is, if it gets into your system, it never leaves. Yep. If you and, ever cooked with Teflon, there is now Teflon in your body. Right now. Yeah. And it will never leave, and it can only just accumulate yeah, yeah. if you – so if you have – I'm just saying this right now. If you have Teflon cookware in your house, you should probably get rid of that. Yeah. Uh, there was a lawsuit. But, but don't throw it into a dump in West Virginia because that's part of the problem. <laughs> that's, that's a good point. Uh, so the idea is Mark Ruffalo's character, Robert Ballot, mm. uh, he was asked by his local community, the place where he grew up. It was, would it was you his pl- grandma. It was his grandma yeah. and people her grandma knew. Uh, would you please look into this? And so he convinces his, corpor- his, his uh, corporate defense attorney group mm. Uh, to sue DuPont. And initially they play it off as like, well, listen, we're friends with DuPont. Mm. If we sue DuPont, it's better than if other people sue DuPont. We're just trying to help them figure out if there's like a couple of rogue elements who are doing something badly in their group. Mm. What they find out is that DuPont has known about this all along and it's been a massive cover-up. This lawsuit went on for, I think, over 10 years. Long, long, long. Got resolved. And then DuPont kept fucking making it worse and worse and mm. worse as they tried desperately not to have to stop making Teflon and mm. also not to pay anyone who got cancer yeah, and never, died. Never settle anything. Um, it is a, it's, it's a legal film. It is a structured, like a legal, mm. not so much a thriller. There's like one scene in the movie where Mark Ruffalo like debates whether to turn on his car. He's, yeah, he's got, might blow up. Yeah. Big, but, and like the trailer makes a big deal out of that moment. This is not a John Grisham novel. This is not a thriller. No. This is a legal drama. And the legal drama isn't so much about, oh, how are we going to get him? But 
whether it's possible to get any corporation mm-hmm. and how you can try to do the right thing. You can try to do the right thing for so long, it destroys your health and your mm-hmm. marriage, and ultimately, you might not succeed even then. Which That's is, how fuck up and terrible it is. Which is uh, really fascinating because this is now the third film wherein Mark Ruffalo played a character stuck in that same situation because he was also in Spotlight, mm-hmm. which is about fighting the Catholic Church and the scandals therein. And the and he was also in Zodiac, which is about how investigating huh. that crime kind of destroyed everybody. I would say of the trilogy, well, this is the lesser of the three. Well, I think this one has something that the other ones don't, and it's that utter frustration that one feels when facing up against something that is clearly doing wrong, that you caught them doing the wrong thing, and they are still too powerful to do anything about. Mm. And I think everybody feels that way sometimes when you look at sort of a, a corrupt system that's working against you. Mm-hmm. You, can't take down, you, I, you can't take down the system. There's just not a way to do it. No, the system uh, is set up to be self-perpetuating. Exactly. You and, and in fact, uh, they even tried to get the government regulators from the EPA to look into this. And the EPA and they just gave up after a while. They gave up after a while, and the chemicals in question weren't being regulated by the EPA, and there was no way to start regulation on something they'd been around so much. It was just the standard. So the government essentially was doing what Dupont asked, mm-hmm. and so yeah, there was nothing that this one man could do, and his constant grind into the drab red tape of something as complicated as as this is I think palpable and real. And I think that's where this film lives is, is in that drab frustration. I I agree with you 100%. Mm. I just don't think that's as good a thing as you think it is. Mm. I think what's missing from this film. And I think it's the reason why Mm. um, it doesn't make as much of an impact on me. I appreciate what it's going for. And Mm. I appreciate this sort of, uh, legal drama as a form of existential nightmare mm. because it's never ending and you yeah. can never make an impact and every victory only leads to more failure. I see all of that and I appreciate all of that. However, what is missing from this and it's something that it doesn't really fit Zodiac because Zodiac's about catching a serial killer. It's not mm. about uncovering a scandal, but uh, to compare it to Spotlight, mm. they're different films, but let's just talk about one thing Spotlight does. This one doesn't. I think Spotlight captures the sense of outrage yeah. better than mm. this film. This film understands there's a lot of moral complexity to it. Um, you know, he brought, you know... Well, it's, it's pretty, it's mor- of, morally, it's pretty simple. Uh, morally, it's pretty straightforward. But at the, at the same time, you know, okay, so listen, I've, we've, we're suing DuPont. Okay, fine. DuPont employ a lot of people in this town. They're not necessarily happy about this. Mm. Like, there's a lot of mixed feelings about it. Like, they, they, they got some of the people who made, were actual plaintiffs in the case to play themselves in the movie. Appreciate which I thought was pretty it. good. Um, yeah, and that they, they show that over the credits, and that's kind of fun. Mm. Um, I mean, not fun, but it's nice. You know, it's, <laughs> I, I appreciate that. It was interesting well, to I, see. I, I think it gives a lot of authenticity to the, yeah. the, that scenario. I, I agree. Yeah. But. Um, I watched this movie and I had been vaguely aware of the whole DuPont thing, mm-hmm. but I really didn't know. Okay. And one of the first things I did, uh, uh, and like my wife saw it with me and we, we saw it together, we're like, we need to get rid of our frying pan. And so we did. We literally okay. threw it out that night. <laughs> okay. We were like, there's a sense of like <laughs> immediacy where you see just how wrong something is mm. and you want to do something about that. 
by removing the sense of outrage and going with said with a sense of like moral ennui, mm-hmm. um, I think you limit the film's ability to find the audience that needs to see this. I think mm. maybe this movie would have benefited from something. I don't want to say sensationalist. That's definitely mm. don't want to go sensationalist because it needs to be plausible. But I think there needed to be. Uh, I think there needed to be something a little bit more grabbing about it, like yeah, a little bit just more uh, anger, maybe. Yeah, more anger. Outrage probably would have made a little lot more sense. Something where you can like tell people mm. you need to well, see I, this, I think, and people um, would go like, "Yeah, you're right. We need to stop this. this. Is, yeah. We need to talk. We need to write letters to Dupont. We need to stop. We need to start boycotting their products." That's something the movie could have done, but because it plays so much like this depressing art house movie that's destined to have a very limited audience. I feel like this movie is weaponized. This movie is supposed to make a difference, mm. but because it's so art house, well, because Todd Haynes I've, made it so uh, downbeat, I don't think it's going to actually succeed. I, I think that's I to think, the film's detriment. I think too many. I think audiences, many audiences, especially adult audiences, have become so savvy to that Hollywood version of activism cinema. Yeah. Uh, that if they were to see something that was a little bit more sensationalist, to use perhaps not quite the right word. Uh-huh. Uh then they might just sort of shrug it off and say, oh, that's just a message picture. It has too much of a politic to it. And I think Todd Haynes did a very wise thing in turning it in from less a an activist film about outrage and more into essentially a Kafka novel <laughs> that, uh, that I think it, it's sort of delving into something a lot deeper. And I was just dreading more and more and more this sort of sense of panic of – Realizing that there's another layer of red tape and paperwork to do. Yeah, paperwork is my least favorite thing in the world. Yeah, it's the worst. So, uh, see, like, there's a scene where they, uh, uh, billet uh, like requests all of the documents from Dupont, saying, "Well, what can you give me all of the records of what studies you have?" And they essentially have nothing organized. It's just boxes full of random papers that fill an entire basement room. And he just sort of looks down. He opens up a box. And he just starts sorting them. And you realize yeah. this is like a 40-year project. And you know what? He does it. You just have to start there's somewhere. no other choice. Yeah. Um, and that it kind of, I think, was where a, a lot of the emotional grabbing is. I think yeah, that, that, I, sort of, that sort of helplessness and dread I, from a Kafka novel. I get all there's, of that. There's but I just few, feel like yeah. that's, that audience that will appreciate that is mm. already going to be on board with this. Like you, could tell, mm. you could send out this information in a tweet and they'd get it. We need to grab the people who mm. aren't mature enough to already be there okay. and appreciate this film. Maybe I'm not again. I don't want it to be sensationalist. Like I don't want it to be bullshit. Yeah, I, but like Spotlight, I thought carried the line. You know, a it's a very there, gripping yeah. drama in a way that I really wouldn't call this gripping. I would, I would no, say it's it's, it's it's not gripping. And there's, yeah, it's just moody. I think is what it is. I liked Mark Ruffalo's performance. It was very understated. They cast uh, they cast Anne Hathaway as his wife in a completely thankless role. She, I, bring, she brings as much as she can to it, but there's not a lot she's working I, with. I was watching this movie, and I kept waiting for her to, like... like her moment. Because you cast Anne Hathaway as Mark Ruffalo's wife, and mm. that's the role she plays. Mm. It's not like she does other stuff and she's Mark Ruffalo's wife. She's the long-suffering wife character who, while the husband is doing great things, she's taking care of the family. And the big moment we're all waiting for, for like, how did you get Anne Hathaway for this do-nothing, thankless role, (laughs) is a speech about how, while you've been doing all of this basically pro bono charity work, Mm. I've been taking care of the family. Yeah. And that whole speech... 
is not that amazing. And it's honestly, the big capper is just seeing sad sack Mark Ruffalo just look at her with puppy dog eyes. I'm like, I know. (laughs) That's, That's all there is to it. Like, there's this... I like I find myself mentally collecting roles from great actresses who have to play shitty supporting roles in like Oscar bait like movies the, the about brave men. male heroes. Yeah, yeah. like uh, 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 Rooney Mara in Lion, or um, oh, I never uh, saw Lion. But uh, yeah. Kieran Knightley in um, Everest, mm-hmm. where she plays Jason Clark's wife on the phone oh, in geez. two scenes, yeah. and you're like, why do you get Kieran Knightley for that? Or um, <laughs> like that's such a she's she's already been nominated for Oscars now. This isn't like a small role that you use to build up a career later. Mm-hmm. It's just wasting a great actor's time when they could be doing something juicier. Yeah, I realize the roles aren't always there, but my uh, God! And you cast Anne Hathaway as the wife back at home in Brokeback Mountain. Yeah, something there is there. A lot, yeah. She has a lot to work with in mm. Brokeback Mountain. That's not just a wife role. Mm. That's not just someone who's supportive. She's going through a lot. There's a reason she was nominated for an Oscar for that movie. Mm. Um, yeah. Anyway, uh, you liked it more than I did. I, but I, did, I, yeah. I agree, it's a good film. Yeah, I agree, it's yeah. a good it's, film. It's, it's a good film, and, yeah. and you know, anything that evokes Kafka is going to be okay. <laughs> Okay, fine. Uh, let's. Uh, what else have we got here? Um, I got a couple of documentaries, but why don't you go through? Oh, let's, let's talk about waves. Oh yeah, let's talk. I about almost waves. forgot waves. Uh, so uh, dark from dark waters to waves. Doing good on the segways. Uh, this is a new film from Trey Edward Schultz, uh, mm. who had previously directed Crescia, which I had not seen, still have not seen, mm. and also uh, the horror movie that pretends it's not a horror movie. It comes at night. Um. I loved it. Comes at night. I, I hated it. I, I think uh, it comes at night is like. T- Here's the thing about sort of those zombie disease post-apocalypse horror movies. After a while, you realize that they've just sort of devolved into a room full of people in close quarters shouting at each other for no reason. Sure. Or just the panic has gotten to them, and there's just long portions of these types of movies where people are screaming. It comes at night. Cuts out those scenes and sort just sort of focuses on the unspoken code that has grown in in the place of ordinary decency and i feel like a, an unspoken suspicion of people around you is the thing that's really destroying us and of course that's the metaphor for the film i find uh, it's, that's it's really so, subdued i think there's no there's not a lot of dialogue i but find we it understand so why simplistic people... and blunt okay. i find that it, what you're calling like really smart and clever mm-hmm. i find um we're just gonna take the thing that is like its own genre and people like, and we're going to only focus on the artsiest, fartsiest stuff. And we're going to take out all the stuff that makes it like exciting and dramatic. And mm-hmm. we're just going to take the only the stuff that makes it an art house, a 24 film. But by cutting out all of the quote unquote good stuff, people like people can treat our film like art, even though it's uh, literally the same film. It's I, literally I, the same I, film. I sense none of the same cynicism that you I, do. But, I, I, no, I don't. I don't yeah. think they're being cynical. I think they're being naive. Well, that that's that's my that's point. Maybe. Um, I think yeah. Waves, however, is naive because Waves plays like an after-school special, mm-hmm. uh, which is a pity to say about this movie because it's clearly trying very hard. Oh, this is um, a this is a this is cinema with a capital cinema c- cinema with a capital K I N O, and uh, it's. <laughs> 
Uh, it's a two-hander sort of uh, yeah, in a, a way. It's, it's a two-act structure. Really, yeah, it's yeah. about two two teenagers. There's a brother and a sister. The first half belongs to the brother character, who is a wrestler on his high school team in uh, his small town in South Florida. Sterling mm-hmm. K. Brown plays his uh, stepfather, mm-hmm. who, who has been. Um, Working out with him and and pushing him and just yeah. sort of bonding with him over yeah. athletics, Tr- trying to push him mm. to be a responsible yeah. man's man. You mm. got to take all this on. You have no. Mm. You have to try ten times as yeah, hard yeah. as anyone if you're going to succeed anywhere. And the, the idea is that there's a lot of pressure. Yeah, the the son is played by Kelvin Harrison, and uh, he spends the first half of the movie fucking up yeah. over and over and over again. It turns out he has injured himself. Uh, in a really bad way, and he needs surgery, but he decides not to tell his parents about that or get the surgery, ensuring that he's just going to have permanent damage to yeah, his shoulder. Just ruining any chance um, he ever had of the sports career he was working so hard for. He may have impregnated his girlfriend, and there's a lot of dramas to whether or not they're going to have the baby or the state of their relationship. And when she starts he's, speaking up for herself, he starts becoming kind more of, abusive. Kind of abusive verbally and emotionally. Yeah, and that uh, starts escalating. He, and he starts up with the substances and the drinking. And, and, and it's and it, basically just him fucking up. Like, let's just, yeah. get, let's just get right to it. And, and, and his, his story ends with him fucking up. Really bad. Really bad. And then the second half of the movie mm. is his sister dealing with the fallout of that now that he is no longer at home. Yeah. Um, the first half of this movie, mm. um, is it sufferable? No, I'd say it's, it's insufferable. insufferable. It's uh, so abrasively told. Like, there's no confidence that the audience is going to get what the filmmaker is laying mm. down. The well, way there's that no, the film- and there's no modulation. Yeah. It's all just heading forward in a blind panic. Now, we'll get to Uncut Gems and talk about blind panic pretty soon <laughs> and how it can be a fe- an effective storytelling tool. But yeah, yeah. It, well, because, no yeah, confidence is a great way to put it. Because like the movie is... They're trying to put you... In Kelvin Harrison Jr.'s character's uh, mindset, where he feels this constant pressure, he's constantly being torn and pulled, I have to do homework, and I have to work for the family, and I have to be a good boyfriend, and I have to hang out with my friends, and I have to be a wrestler, and I have to train, and all that kind of stuff, and look, he's got a lot going on, no one's arguing that. I think you can convey that without literally, I would say about 75% of the shots Mm. in the first half of the movie are rotating the camera around 360 degrees. <laughs> like, it's it's just to give you the sense of uh, constant movement. You're, 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 all, you're never comfortable within a frame. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's in, it's completely insufferable. It's yeah. just yelling at the audience. It's like, it's like tweeting someone in, in all caps. Mm. But in, as far as filmmaking goes, and <laughs> the actual story they're telling, you're, you just claimed it to an after-school special, which I hope people actually remember. Uh, there was a period of time when there were after-school specials in which... Re- really dramatic mm-hmm. message pictures about teenagers facing modern problems. Yeah, there's a classic one where, with uh, Ben Affleck when he was a, when he was a kid. And, uh, he played a teenager who took steroids and mm. it completely fucked him up. As you know, it they, would. They were usually a drug and drug and sex scare films. Frequently. Yeah. Um, and uh, this is as simple as that, but by trying to truss it up with fancy cinematography and an admittedly really good cast. Everyone involved is a talented actor. Sterling K. Brown is, is great. In this He's movie. always good. Yeah. He's a great actor. Um, but they're basically trying to convince you that it's more than it is. And 
I got to be honest here. After it comes at night, I was not surprised to find that. Okay. Because I had a different take on that than you yeah, did. I, I, I liked it comes at night, but yeah, this one just did nothing. And then we, we shift uh, focus to the his little sister, mm-hmm. who is also in high school. Uh, she's played by Taylor Russell. She's uh, great. She's great. And she's really she good. actually is, is a much more uh, modulated character. Mm-hmm. She has a little bit more variety in her life. Uh, she starts dating a kind boy, played by Lucas Hedges. Mm-hmm. Um, who was in Boy Erased and another film with Boy in the title. Yeah, he was in Manchester by the Sea, Oscar nominated for that. Yeah. Really good actor. He's a good actor. Good good young actor. And it was in Honey Boy as well. He played uh, Shia LaBeouf. Like an so, adult Shia LaBeouf. So he was in Boy Erased, Honey Boy, and... Boy A? Was it? No, it wasn't Boy... Oh, no, he, he was in... Um, uh, ben is back, which ah. I which I confuse with that whole crop of films that came up at the same time. Oh, it's got more B words. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so but the second half I mixed it up with beautiful boy. It, it's frustrating because I want to like the second half more, and I do. I like the second mm. half more, but like she's not. She doesn't have her own story. Mm. Her brother had his own story. Her story is entirely about her reacting to the men in her life. And there's something that's a little sort of uncommented on about that. Like, the movie doesn't seem to notice that that's her whole narrative. That it's about dealing yeah. with the fallout of what happened with her brother and how it affected the family. Dealing with her father, who is now increasingly estranged from uh, his wife, her stepmother. And now he's the only... Mm. She's the only person he can talk to. And this boyfriend she's got, who has troubles of his own, and... All the majority of the relationship, other than some nice early dating, is her helping him with stuff. Mm. What about her? She has one good breakdown, but like it's all about how she's important to all these other dudes. And and as a result, her whole story feels a little insincere because it's not about her. Even her boyfriend is about reconciling with like the boyfriend has a father he has to reconcile with at some point. Yeah, she's. I wish the movie had been aware of. Uh, or, kind of or at least commented on how she's kind of just she's been forced into being this kind of non-entity. Yeah, she's, a, she's amongst the she's, male egos. She has around to support her, all yeah. these people. What is her life? Is this it? I guess the movie doesn't go anywhere else. It feels so underdeveloped and, and so and then, thoughtless a lot of the time. And then and then Harmony Kareen shows up in one scene. It's really bizarre. <laughs> Was that Harmony Kareen? It was Harmony Kareen in Holy that one shit. scene? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah, I actually didn't recognize them. Weird. All right. Well, fair enough. If Harmony Kareen had made a film like this, he would really would have rolled with kind of the sensationalistic aspects of it, and mm-hmm. in a way that would have made America seem gross. You, you know, and, I, and I appreciate that from our Harmony Kareen. There, there's a way to do. I feel like this is trying to be a, a subtle drama, but it's ignoring the fact that it's a melodrama. Yeah, like it's that's, it's yeah. got huge dramatic beats. There's all the dramatic beats in this movie mm. are huge because there's only like four of them, <laughs> and the rest of the movie is just trying mm. to hammer home how important the movie is. It's, yeah, like the the it's photog- it, it feels like um, it almost feels like an artistic exercise. Can mm. we use really like? staggering and striking photography mm. and really kind of meaningful downbeat music by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. That's a, yeah, it's a hell of a score, uh, man. So, yeah, a lot of really great music. Can we use just style to bring something out of the most uh, 
Tur- turgid after school types melodram- yeah. melodramatic story. Yeah, just kind of material that mm. doesn't really deserve this treatment. Yeah, can, can which we is ele- again can, how I felt about it comes in. Can we time. elevate? Yeah, bad material just with style. And as it turns out, no, I don't think you can. Sometimes you can cover it up if the style is the point. Yeah, that's a good. That's a well. Mm. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. And mm. listen, listen. Um, I know a lot of people are getting a lot out of this movie. Mm. Okay, I disagree on this one, man. I gotta tell you, I do not think this... Like, I've, I've argued before that an experiment doesn't have to work for it to be worthwhile. An, an interesting experiment. Yeah, like, you and I have both defended Gus Van Zandt's Psycho on those grounds, where it's an interesting attempt to explore whether a movie literally is just a compilation of shots, or if there's more to it than that. And mm-hmm. the movie proves that it's not a compilation of shots, there is more to it than that. Um, here, I think we proved that you can't just overshoot and overscore something <laughs> and get away and with an underwritten drama, in it. yeah, an underwritten, written mm. weak drama. Um, but I think I can't recommend this. I can't tell people it's worth seeing just to see the experiment mm. fail because the failed experiment is so uninteresting, and it's a shame because there's some good. You're right. There's some good performances in this movie. Mm. All the actors are fine. Yeah, like all the actors are doing their job, they just don't have as much to work with as they should, and yeah, that's a damn yeah, shame. Yeah. Um, well, tell me about because I've heard good things about this one, okay. and I missed this one. I'll, I'll get to, I'll get around to this. Mm. Uh, Ford v Ferrari, Dawn of Justice. Ford v Ferrari, Dawn of Justice is um, well, it's about Batman. Good, and hey, it's uh, Christian Bale. Yeah, and, and I was trying to think of a superhero that Matt Damon has played. I guess Jason Bourne. Yeah, he was in Thor Ragnarok. Didn't he play Thor in that? Oh, that uh, no, he played Loki in. Okay, that. so it's so it's uh, Batman so, and Loki. Batman and Loki. Uh, <laughs> no, it, it takes place in 1966 when uh, the Ford Motor Company was uh, sort of flagging in sales. Uh, Henry Ford the Third, mm. played by Tracy Letts. Always uh, fine. Realizes that he, he's convinced by uh, one of his underlings that the way to really put Ford on the map is to beat Ferrari. Now, Ford says, beat well, Ferrari at what? For, Ferrari is a bankrupt company in 1966, but he uh, Enzo Ferrari, who's you know, alive at the time, was uh, well known as the world's best maker of cars because he built the fastest cars, mm. and they were always winning Le Mans. And they looked really cool, and they were these sort of luxury items. He didn't make a lot, but people knew Ferrari, the name. Right. Whereas Ford is making you know every car in America. Uh, in order to uh, make sure that this happens, uh, the Ford company hires the Matt Damon character, who then goes to the best mechanic he knows, who is the Christian Bale character. Ah. Uh, these are uh, let me look up their names. They're all real. They're, dudes. They're, they're real people. Hang on, I can find this. Um, I'm right here. Um, what do we got here? Who but, are the, uh, Who are you, gentlemen? <laughs> What's your deal? Uh, Matt Damon plays a dude uh, <laughs> named Carol Shelby, okay. and Christian Bale plays a dude named Ken Miles. And uh, Ken, Kenneth Miles. And the was... Punisher plays Lee Iacocca. Yes. And the guy who uh, wanted uh, to steal the Hulk's girlfriend plays Leo Beebe. Uh, <laughs> John Bernthal plays um, the guy in, in Ford, whose idea this was that he pitches to Tracy Latz. And then Josh Lucas uh, is in it somewhere. And yeah. Josh Lucas is in it somewhere. Uh, and. <laughs> Now, it's it's actually nice that we're referring to all these characters as he was a dude, because this is one of the dude bro movies you've ever seen, because it's about dudes talking about cars. Yeah, it's all about my dad hanging out in the backyard, yeah. building motorcycles and, and drinking beer. And it really is about just those gearheads. Oh, man, the Ford Mustang, yeah, it's a pretty car, but yeah, this drive shaft is in the wrong place, and you got to use these different kind of lug nuts. I have no idea about cars. <laughs> uh, 
I, I don't know from Cars, but you know the film knows about Cars. And uh, <laughs> and Kristen Bale, excellent actor, one of the best. Yeah, uh, really Just good. really gets into the character and that arrogance of knowing more than anybody about Cars, including every car manufacturer. It's right. Like, you know, this Ferrari's nice, but you can improve it this way and this way and this way. Can, can I get these expensive parts? No, we can't afford those. You're going to fail! <laughs> He like throws wrenches. There's a and they end up going to Le Mans with uh, the the Ford and the Ferrari and uh, Kristen Bale is supposed to race, but then there's like some drama as to who gets to race. There's a scene where Matt Damon steals a lug nut and makes all the Ferrari team freak out because they're missing a lug nut and they thought, oh no, we dropped a lug nut, but it really just planted it there. And it's a really little little joke. And there's a scene where uh, Kristen Bale and Matt Damon are really mad at each other, and then and they, they fight and they punch each other and they say, let's get a beer. And, and then and, the Ryan Reynolds snail then, is like, I want to race, and yeah. they're like, you can't, you're a and, snail. And then you look down at your own chest and you realize it's hairier. <laughs> It it it's almost it's like a puffball. It's it's a really light, spirited, completely forgettable piece of fluff. Well, it's directed by James Mangold, yeah. and I, I didn't see this one, but I'm a fan of James Mangold. I think he mostly makes really I, good movies. I think he's and hit and miss James Mangold. I th- I'm, I'm struggling to think of a movie he completely airballed. Mm. Um, I mean, yeah, hit or miss, sure. Well, but I mean, he, like I didn't see Kate and Leopold. I'm not fond of. It's sweet. I'm it's, not fond of Girl Interrupted. Uh, okay. But, you, you can say uh, yay or nay on Walk the Line, frankly. I would and, say, uh, and like, I did like his Three Ten to Yuma remake, and, would, and Logan uh, was really terrific. I, I would say, like uh, most of his movies, mm-hmm. with a few notable exceptions, I think Girl Interrupted is a good example, and uh, the movie Heavy, which I think was his debut, is really excellent, and that's mm-hmm. way more sensitive than a lot of his other work. But a lot of his movies are. In a very masculine milieu, take a drink. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's interested a lot in issues of male camaraderie, male bravado, mm-hmm. uh, the the masculine ideal of a warrior, for example, in his Wolverine movies, yeah. and and Three Ten to Yuma is another good example of that, or <coughs> um, or in Copland where he talks about you know just the bro oh, code, Copland as well. You know, yeah. like you, we have to stick together because we're cops, even if we're corrupt. Mm-hmm. Like we got take care of ourselves and um so it makes sense that he'd make a car movie it makes sense that he'd capture that spirit of just dudes talking about cars mm. but it just sounds like the stakes are really low well i mean the, the stakes are only high for millionaires but even then, like, they're, they're still selling cars. Like, Ford still yeah. is selling a lot of cars, right? Well, and there, there's a twist, and you can look all this stuff up, so I'm not you know giving anything away. But yeah, Ford meets with Ferrari saying, hey, wh- what do you say to this, this match? And it turns out Ferrari just took the meeting with the Ford company so he could send a messenger over to Fiat saying, hey, Ford's going to buy Ferrari. You better come in and buy Ferrari before you get it, and he ended up selling it to Fiat for a higher price. So uh-huh. Fiat owned the Ferrari company for a while there. That's fun. Mm. Um, it sounds neat. Is, mm. is it, so it's good. It's just kind of fluffy. It's good. It's yeah. It's kind of fluffy. That like there, there's not. There's going to be like maybe kind of a like a little tear moment here and there in that kind of fakey Hollywood sort of way. But yeah, mm. it's just another sort of dudes hanging out kind of like. All right, fair enough. Uh, okay, so we're moving uh, into the home stretch as the movies get a little bit more esoteric. We've got a couple of documentaries, and of course, we have a Netflix Christmas film. Let's talk Th- about the that's documentaries. That's not Klaus. Uh, that is not Klaus. Mm. Yeah, that's true, actually. I didn't realize we had two of those. Mm. Uh, so we got two documentaries, and let's talk about those. Uh, the first one, uh, and I think I'm the only one who saw both of these, right? Mm. Right? You're the only one okay. who saw both of these. Uh, the first one is called Scandalous, the Untold Story of the National Enquirer. Uh, this is a movie that tells the untold story of the National Enquirer. 
Although I know a lot of the details of the story of the National Enquirer, especially well, recently. Okay, well, they've never been told all at once, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, the National Enquirer, uh, if you're vaguely familiar with it, if you're maybe... I know we have a lot of international listeners. Um, the National Enquirer is a tabloid, and it is kind of the ultimate tabloid. Mm-hmm. Um, it was uh, founded with mob money from a guy who knew the mob. Mm-hmm. Like I think a mafioso was literally his godfather. Uh, and his father ran a legit newspaper in New York, and he wanted to buy his own newspaper, and he bought a newspaper called The Inquirer, which was mostly local sports stuff. Mm. And he wanted to make it into a big deal, so he started calling it The National Inquirer. And in order to sell more copies, he got really lurid, and the initial plan, and it worked, was we'll sell more papers if we publish photos of the dead, so car accidents, <laughs> and this guy got shot, like in a mob hit, and we're going to give you the first pictures of the body. It's the nightcrawler philosophy. And then eventually, he, and it worked, you know, circulation mm-hmm. rose, but circulation didn't explode until the guy realized, the guy who owned the company, the best place to sell a newspaper or a tabloid, which is at all these supermarkets that are popping up all over America. And we've always had supermarkets, but with suburban areas, you know, we we haven't always had supermarkets. They were were innovated at some point. We've had markets. My point is we have supermarkets, Mm. we have suburbs, and there is one place where literally everyone in the family will be at least once a week, and that is a supermarket. Mm. So if we get our magazine slash tabloid at the checkout counter... With eye-catching headlines, we'll That's make a an miss. Yeah. And it was brilliant. And well, from it a marketing worked. perspective. No, from a marketing perspective. Yeah. If you're just trying to sell papers, <clears throat> it works. It's a really brilliant business model, and they sold a ton of papers. And they sold so many that they actually had fantastic investigative journalists working for them. Problem is, all they were trying to do is find out who's sleeping with who and who's on drugs. Mm. So it was full of various scandals, usually celebrity scandals, because the people who ran National Enquirer eventually figured out that what the people who weren't famous and weren't quote-unquote important, if you want to be cynical about it, wanted was to see famous important people taken down a peg. Yeah. And that was what sold. So they would start paying people for tips. Like, oh, you work at a hotel and you just delivered something to, I don't know, John Belushi and there was a lot of drugs there. We'll give you 50 bucks for that. Mm. And then they got all that information and it was a big deal. The documentary is largely about the whole history of the National Enquirer from beginning to end. Okay. Um, and how they went from being this like sort of, you know, sort of the brunt of a joke but making so much money that they didn't care, to actually in the 90s when mainstream journalism started getting a little more tabloidy and they started focusing on things like the O.J. Simpson trial. Right. uh, The National Enquirer was actually doing some of the best investigative journalism because they were already in that world. (laughs) And they already knew how to get all those stories. A big scandal. They were already prepared. Yeah, they knew all the people. They knew everyone who worked at the morgue. They they had it all there. They were already present and they had a toehold there where no one else did. To the modern era, in which, after this paper changed hands several times, they stopped being sort of equal opportunity horrible and started being aggressively political, which is why you might have noticed in the last few years, they're all about how Trump is going to save America and how Mm. Hillary Clinton is dying and corrupt. Mm. And the newspaper is failing. 
The newspaper circulation is down to like the hundreds of thousands. It used to be in the millions. But they're still successful because people keep pouring money into it because they're at the checkout stands. They're still that that, 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 that real estate is still working. That is it's no longer a tabloid. It's it's like advertising space mm. for a mentality. Yeah. And so the movie is all about like that weird and kind of horrible progression. And there's some interesting expose bits where they talk about how like reporters who had dug up horrible stuff about Bill Cosby mm-hmm. in the eighties when he was at his peak popularity and the Cosby show was still on the airwaves mm-hmm. and how Bill Cosby called the editor, had the story spiked in exchange for a puff piece about how great Bill Cosby was. Oh, gee whiz. And there's a couple of those. And you're just like, holy shit, that's bad. Mm-hmm. Like, wow. Like, it's just, and it, it's a lot of people who work there going from these, like, love it or leave it stories about, like, how, like, yeah, you know, you used to have, like, this unlimited travel budget and we take up two floors yeah. of a hotel in Monaco and it was all really, really great. And then gradually they realized that they destroyed journalism in America. <laughs> like, because the National because, yeah, seriously. Because, because the National Enquirer proved that letting your audience dictate what stories you tell is a good business model, people stopped caring about giving their readers the stories they needed to hear and started only focusing mm. on what sells. Whether or not it's right or good or moral or ethical. It's the fandom of journalism. Exactly. Mm. So it's just basically it goes from, ha we have the greatest job in the world to we ruined the whole fucking human race. <sighs> and it's a great documentary. Mm. Like it's really informative. I've given you like a lot the broad strokes of it, I realize, but like there's a ton of other cool stuff in there. Um, it's it's pretty breezy. I think it's about an hour and a half, but you don't really feel it. It just skips along. Um, it's it's really excellent. Mm. So I just recommend it. I'm, and you know me, I'm not a big documentary guy. So if I say it's a really fun documentary, <laughs> it's, I, I mean it. It's yeah, it's, yeah. it's a crossover thing. You should check it out. Uh, the second documentary I saw, uh, I think this was both this last week, uh, is a new one uh, called Citizen K. And I want to make sure I look this one up because uh, it's about a lot of Russian people and I don't want to mess up anyone's name. All right. Uh, so this but is it's, the it's mostly about Putin, right? Um, it is and it isn't. Okay. Uh, it is the story, Citizen K, is Mikhail Khodorkovsky. Khodorkovsky. I always want to remove that middle K and call him Khodorkovsky. No, it's Khodorkovsky. Khodorkovsky. Um. Mikhail Khodorkovsky was one of the original uh, Russian oligarchs that rose after the fall of communism. Oh yeah, that. Okay, so mm. a lot of the movie is a lot is a deep dive into Russian contemporary political history. Mm. It's all fascinating, though. I'll give you that. <laughs> from the like, Alex Gibney who did that great oh, uh, documentary. No I yeah, love Alex Gibney. Yeah, 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 from yeah. that documentary, he did the, the one about Scientology and a whole yeah, bunch of other. I think he did ones. the Enron documentary as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so this is about. Uh, in order to understand the story of Mikhail Khodorkovsky, you need to understand the story of Vladimir Putin. Mm. I'm going to try to give it to you in broad strokes so you can understand what the movie is about, but there's a whole two-hour movie, (laughs) dense with information. (laughs) I felt so enriched by knowing all this stuff. One of the functions of film is to inform. And and documentary in particular, Mm. and this one, I think there's a little issue with bias in here that runs into a bit of a problem, but... Uh, which is a danger with documentaries that are trying to be purely informative. Eventually, you do clearly have, like, it's, it's possible to have a favorite. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, like, yeah. that person kind of gets off light. Um, but um, basically, here's the deal. 
Uh, throughout a lot of the middle of the 20th century, Russia was a ostensibly communist country. And mm. when the communism collapsed, they wanted to become a capitalist country. But they had no experience at it. Mm. And so for a while, it was kind of the Wild West out there. And if you had any interest or experience in capitalism, you could basically take over an entire industry within a couple of months, yeah. which is what a, basically what seven or eight people did. They basically divvied up the entire <clears throat> economy between mm. less than 10 people. I, I remember when that happened because <clears throat> my sister was an exchange student to the Soviet Union slash Russia wow. during the coup. Wow. That's a hell of a time yeah, to be in she, Russia. She went there in How long was 1991 there? when the coup was going down. How she long? was there for a whole year. A whole year? Yeah. Holy shit. So she, she went... went she was an exchange student to the Soviet Union and stayed in Leningrad and then came back from Russia and St. Petersburg because they, <laughs> they went back to the old names. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, so Mikhail Khodorkovsky was the oligarch who had basically taken complete control over the oil industry. Mm. Uh, and he and his other oligarchs, when it came time to reelect Boris Yeltsin, uh, who had taken over, I believe, after Mikhail Gorbachev. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeltsin had a, I think, a two percent approval rating. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> liked him. Popular guy. Nobody liked him, and also Le- Lenin's in, corpse was more popular. And he was in failing health, and nobody liked him. And as TV started getting deregulated by the government, we started getting more like political theater on TV. Like there were actually puppet shows about how Yeltsin sucked <laughs> that were like the South Park of Russia. And so the oligarchs got oh, together, one it. of whom ran TV, mm-hmm. and decided to use all of their TV power to make Yeltsin seem awesome and so they got Yeltsin reelected and then when Yeltsin couldn't finish his first term he let this this new guy Putin take over yeah and Putin who has been nobody he was a member of the KGB who after the fall of communism was involved in a uh, a kickback scandal which he somehow parlayed into a promotion yeah. Now he's like a minor guy in Yeltsin's regime. By the end of Yeltsin's regime, he's president. Mm. And he has understood the power of television. And he starts taking back the power of television. To the point where, like... To the point where he's essentially a dictator again. But there's a scene in the movie. It's fucking incredible. There's a scene in the movie where, like, he's he or one of his lackeys, and they're, like, out in public, and they're giving a speech. And someone is protesting and saying something from the audience, like, mm. an angry question from the audience. And then someone gets up like behind them and then they sit down and then they zoom in on the footage you can see them syringe the guy <laughs> it's on TV you can see oh them God. pick up a syringe knock the person out and have him sit down it's incredible Vladimir Putin is an evil man yes he is so Mikhail Godorkovsky uh, who had gone through a lot of stuff and like when the economy started to collapse a bit and they had to lay off a ton of people and he talks in the documentary about how how bad that made him feel to lay off thousands of people. Mm. And I'm like, you were still a billionaire. You could have done something about that, but okay, we're not going to ask that question. Citizen K. We're not. Okay, fine. Um, he starts getting more political, which all the other oligarchs had agreed not to do. Yeah. That was like, they were allowed they're, to control they're, they're, the economy the, the, because they didn't stand up to Putin. Yeah, the, the protected wealthy class. So he starts getting more political and Putin starts targeting him. And, he ends up being railroaded on multiple occasions for a murder he probably didn't commit. Uh, and probably. <laughs> they never quite solved that one, but it's okay. understood he probably didn't. All right. Uh, he, he ends up going to jail the first time. And again, this is like putting like Jeff Bezos in prison. This mm. would be like if Jeff Bezos spoke out against Trump mm. and then Trump 
threw Jeff Bezos in jail. And the, what they throw Khodorkovsky in jail for initially is uh, not paying taxes on the hundreds of millions of gallons of oil he sold. Okay. Okay. If he didn't do that, that would be worth going to jail for. So he goes to Siberia. And just when everything seems like he might be like getting out, they decide to hold another trial. This time he's on trial for literally never selling any oil and stealing mm. 350 million gallons of oil. So he didn't pay taxes on the oil that he stole. Yes. Also, he... As, that's, his, that's the government story. Also, that's... also Khodorkovsky was interviewed in this thing. He, he can't help but laugh. Where do they think I put it? <laughs> like, where do you hide? You can circumnavigate the globe with that much oil. Where do you think I put that oil? <laughs> it's like, it's absurd. Mm. And by that trial... He stopped treating it like a real trial yeah. and just started laughing at everything happening. And that's when people started to get behind this guy who is clearly being martyred, being even rail- though railroaded, yeah. even though he's an oligarch who like completely destroyed a lot of things in Russia. Mm. So he's this really complicated guy. But because Putin is so terrible mm. and a lot of the movies it's about how Putin is terrible, it's like it's like Jack Nicholson and Tim Burton's Batman. He just takes over the film <laughs> because Putin is so terrible. Khodorkovsky, who is clearly at best, a complicated individual mm. uh, looks so much better yeah. in comparison, and the movie just kind of goes with that. And then eventually he gets out of prison and he starts like trying to make things better in Russia, but he has to do it from afar because they decide that um, if he ever sets foot on Russian soil again, he'll be tried and executed for murder, which, again, he probably didn't commit. Um, it's a hell of a story. yeah, And it's a really good... Gateway. It's like this is really not so much about Khodorkovsky as it is about this is a very efficient way to get a lot of recent political history of Russia into one story, into one film. Because it's a lot. Mm -hmm. There was a film earlier this year called Meeting Gorbachev, which uh, Werner Herzog did. That's right. Which was a series of uh, interviews with uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, who was very, very old and probably not going to be as much longer. And he wanted to get his story while he could. And, um, that was more about how communism fell. And this is kind of a great companion piece because this is about what happened afterwards yeah. and how it all got fucked. Oh, the, the, the thing that rushed in after communism was arguably even worse. Was, was, was just flat out yeah. fascism, basically, under the yeah. guise of under the guise of democracy. Mm. Um, yeah, it's so really that, illuminating and really fascinating. Um, so dense, however, that it might not be for everyone all the time. All right. So if you're not in the mood to learn... Mm. Uh, you know, I understand if you're more in the mood for a Christmas movie, but if you are interested at all in what's happening in <laughs> Russia, which you should be, it's directly related to what's going on here in a lot of ways. Uh, this is a really important documentary. So. Vladimir Putin is an evil man. How my neck? Yeah, <laughs> he basically, it's crazy. Um, where did this dart come from? And then lastly, speaking of Christmas movies, uh, we have another Netflix Christmas movie. This one's called. As you may remember from the beginning of the podcast, the night before Christmas. Night with a K. Night with a K. And one thing I love, if nothing else, I'm going to give this movie a lot of credit. Uh, they got as close as possible to the Nightmare Before Christmas font for the title. as like they legally could. They're not going for Twas the Night Before Christmas. They're clearly like think that expression started with the Nightmare Before, the Nightmare Christmas, before Christmas. And that's what they're bastardizing. It's hilarious. Oh, jeez. And it says Vanessa Hudgens, right? The Vanessa Hudgens, who also okay. produced it. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. So this was her project. This was a, this was a press, uh, passion project. Oh, my goodness. Uh, so the night 
mm-hmm. before Christmas, and you have to say it with that pause over you're not really saying it, uh, is the story of a medieval knight... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I just say it that way. <laughs> Sent away. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I watched. I watched part of this. I watched about ninety seconds of this movie. Uh-huh. So I know it takes. It opens in the fourteenth century. Yeah, it opens in the fourteenth century. And, it, and there's two hunky brothers who are on a falconing trip, and that's when I turned it off. There's two hunky brothers. They're on a falconing trip. It's a couple of days. before. It, it was circumstances. It wasn't that ni- that ninety seconds was so abrasive and that I hated it so badly <laughs> that I had to turn it off. I just no, it's fine. wasn't it's, able to to continue after that. So I did see like a minute and a half. There's two. Hunky Knights, and uh, they go into the woods, and Hunky Knight A, uh, whose name is Sir Cole, uh, because Cole is a vaguely Christmassy name, Old Cole. King Cole. Or that's what you get in your stocking, isn't it? Uh, played by Josh Whitehouse. Uh, he runs into an old crone, and if you want a drinking game for this, just take a drink every time he says old crone. Okay. You will get devastated. Mm-hmm. Um, which, by the way, not a nice thing to call people. And like halfway through the film, someone finally says, mm. "Hey, would you mind not calling my wife that?" A crone. <laughs> yeah, just just chill with the crone mm. business, man. What the fuck? So there's an old crone in the woods, and she's like, "Oh, would you help an old crone?" And he's like, "I sure would, old crone. What can I do for you, old crone?" And she's like, "Aha! You have passed my tests." And I'm like, well, that was an easy one. And uh, <laughs> so it's like, and for this, I will send you to the future where you will not return until you finish your quest. What did Napoleon say in the Battle of Waterloo? I don't know. I give up. They always get that one. So he ends up going to the present day where he meets Vanessa Hudgens. But I want to stop right there for a second oh. because that's a weird plot point. Normally in a movie like this, the protagonist enrages the witch mm. and then the witch teaches them a valuable lesson like in Beauty and the Beast or uh, the Frog Prince or whatever and here it's like oh you you, you it's like if, it's like if he was mean to the crone she would have sent him into the future to learn a valuable lesson yeah but because he was nice to the crone she sends him into the future to learn a valuable lesson about being mean? Or I, about a, just uh, why just, love is cool, I guess. Like they need his type of honesty in the future? Because she's got, like, the inside track on what the future will be like? He knows. And, he He's told that he needs to go on a quest in order to, to make it back. But he doesn't know what his right. quest is. And the quest is fucking love. Of course it is. And, like, that wasn't his problem. <laughs> he didn't have a problem to solve. That's, it's just cool. That should like, have been the title. The quest is fucking love. <laughs> He ends up in, like, the Santa's Village Christmas Town attraction or whatever. And people confuse him for, like, one of the people who works there. You know, like, when you go to, like, Christmas events and there are medieval knights walking around. You know, like there are. You can see Santa in the wintertime. Because right now, Santa's (laughs) Village. Seriously, have you ever seen a medieval knight in Christmas stuff? No. It's not part of it. It's this weird, it's like this David S. Pumpkins thing where, like, why are there B-Boy skeletons? We're part of it. Okay, I guess. There's like a Any bit questions? Like, there's a bit later on where there's a Christmas party right. and he dresses back up in his night armor so that people can take selfies with them. And I'm just like, that's not a Christmas thing. <laughs> no one has ever done that. That's so weird. Uh, Vanessa, he's wandering around kind of confused. And Vanessa mm. Hudgens uh, accidentally hits him with her car. And okay. so and so they think he's hit his head and he's confused yeah. because he was dressed like a knight. He thinks he's a real knight. Mm. And so since he doesn't know anybody and they were just going to bring him to a drunk take, Vanessa Hudgens, stupidly, brings him back to her house. Okay. The medieval Van- knight. Vanessa. 
You do not know this man. He has no, no identification. She did just, you know, inflict some pretty severe head trauma. I, I on appreciate. This guy. I appreciate guilt. She's probably well, guilt, and she's probably trying to you know, cover her ass, perhaps. But I'm going to say this right now. She did the right thing. She called the cops. The mm. cops were there. They gave him a once over. They said he hit his head. We just need. We don't have anywhere to put him because we don't have any ID for him. So we're just going to put him in a drunk tank. And she's like, okay, now just bring him back to my house. You're alone in your house with a strange man who had head trauma. No medical attention. He is either... I mean, there's a chance that he's going to wake up and realize that he's a creeper mm. and be creepy. Or he could wake up and just find himself in a stranger's house and wig out and be mad at you. Mm. And he's ca- carrying a two-handed broadsword. And- literally the only good version of this story, Vanessa, is if he's actually a medieval knight from the past and he's here on a message on a, on a quest so of maybe, love. Maybe she knows something that we don't. Is she also a time traveler? I wish that would have been a great twist. Is she the mannequin from Mannequin Two? That would have been, been a great twist. I'm not going to lie. I would love to see a movie about uh, like a medieval knight travels through time, hits his head, and thinks he's a modern man. <laughs> that would be fun. He wakes up and is like, "Oh, oh, I guess I'm just a regular guy now." But it turns out he's really from the 14th century. You could do that. I think I think Kermit did that in Muppets Take Manhattan. He forgot he was a frog. That's right. <laughs> well, he forgot he was Kermit the Frog. Yeah, yeah. He forgot he was an entertainer. Um, now, remember, because sitcoms taught us this, a blow to the head gives you amnesia. And? A blow to the head cures amnesia. Thanks to the Flintstones. I think the Flintstones so, started that. My point is, if you get in trouble, hit a lot of people on the head. <laughs> Yes. Invest in mallets. He, she, she brings him to, by the way, she inherited a huge fancy house. Uh, she brings him to his get to her guest house and leaves him there alone with nothing but TV and Alexa. Oh, no. And, like, he thinks he's, so he, he is confused by Alexa and then eventually puts Alexa into, like, the winter room, which is, like, what he calls the fridge. Because mm. he doesn't know what to do with her because he won't shut up and stop playing yeah. music. And then he just watches TV and he picks up on all the things he needs to know about modern culture. And then she's like, did you binge all night? Yes. Would you like to binge with me in this Netflix movie? And there's a whole plot point about how they romantically binge watch streaming services. On a streaming service. On the streaming service exclusive see, movie. See, I, I, I get a whiff of self-service self there. You, you would yeah. imagine, right? But no, it's total coincidence, I'm sure. I'm sure it is. Yeah. I, I kind of want to barf. Yeah! I kind of want to barf. But I know, I know. It's, but it's it's a hoot nonetheless. The other awesome thing about this... But, well, so... And they fall in love. That's that's the deal. Oh, they, they fall they, they the bond. hell in love. Oh, yeah. They fall all kinds of in love. And she finds out that he's a knight from the past and can't stand it. And then she goes back to the past no, with him? Or no. he stays in the modern day with her? Okay, I'm gonna... Uh, or do they tragically separate? Okay. Um, you can just It's fine. No, There's no, no, not no, going to no, be a big I'm shocker gonna, here. I'm going to give you the gist of it because it's yeah. that simple a movie. If you really want to see this, go turn it off. See the movie. Um, <laughs> I love your your passion. Defense. Like you're, you're gonna you're gonna. I just, I just like I'm gonna tell you the whole damn movie. So mm. y- be aware. Yeah. Uh, he's really awesome, and it turns out he's totally awesome, and he didn't bring any strange diseases with him at all. Nor is he afflicted by any of our super diseases. But I digress. Um, and uh, he knows how to bake bread. 
and he breaks fresh bread for her various for her various things. Mm. He rescues kids from the ice okay. when the ice breaks, and after he taught them how to fight with swords. Listeners, you can't see my eyes rolling. <laughs> I assure you, they're rolling a lot. <laughs> um, and then uh, he it uh, he thinks his quest is to like. This old crone must have sent me hundreds of years into the future in order to make Christmas slightly better for this single dad who's got a couple of kids and is kind of making it work. And then uh, when he finally kisses Vanessa Hudgens, then his magical amulet starts glowing and he disappears. And Vanessa Hudgens is like, oh, I guess... um that was it. Guess that was a real thing, huh? That's just, weird. Just had to lay one on some dad and yeah. uh, sends knights back in time. And then he's just like, oh, God, I came back in time for my brother's knighting ceremony. And brother's just like, you left Vanessa Hudgens for me? Get the hell back there. Find the old crone. And he's like, okay, cool. Hey, old crone, I still respond to that happily for some reason. Mm. And he's just like, can I go back? She's just you, like, sure, I don't give a fuck. And she sends him back. Have you considered that her name is Old Crone? I don't think that's a... Can you imagine... Gertrude Old Crone. Can you imagine being named Old Crone when you're four? That'd be great. <laughs> That's terrible. It's a name we thought she'd grow into. <laughs> yeah, well, as, soon as, as soon as she hits 78. It's good. Perfect. The best thing in this movie mm. came about halfway through when I realized something pretty huge. They're decorating a Christmas tree. It's a Christmas movie. You got to do the bit. <laughs> and they pick up an ornament. That's really fancy. Mm. And someone says... I think I'm getting this right. Oh, yeah. I picked that up on my trip to Aldovia. Aldovia was the Christmas Prince. Yes. That was the country the Christmas Prince took place in. It's a shared universe. You've got to be fucking kidding me. We have a Christmas Prince. We have a Christmas Night. This ends with a sequel tease for the possibility of a different Christmas Night. Mm. I think we're going to have a full-on Christmas crossover in the future. Uh, you know what? Hold on. What were the names of all of the different tales from the Canterbury Tales? Because there was the Knight's Tale and there was oh. the Miller's Tale. So they're just going to do oh, a Christmas Canterbury Tales. There's just going to be like hundreds of these things. I love how much credit you're giving Netflix for wanting to, <laughs> to adapt Canterbury Tales with <laughs> shitty Christmas movies. Yeah! <laughs> you know, if they make like a hundred of these things and it turns out there's like a parallel to every one of the Canterbury Tales, I would give them so much credit, even yeah. if it's a hundred shitty movies. I love that Netflix has realize what a big business shitty TV Christmas movies are. Yeah. And to be fair, they are doing them slightly differently than Hallmark. They still have that same cheesy chintziness. Mm. Um, but uh, they are way more inclusively cast. Mm. Appreciated. Uh, they're a little more expensive. I wouldn't call them expensive movies, but, you know, they have more locations, yeah. more s- set pieces, you could call them. Um, I mean, a, it's not hardly Alfonso Cuaron, but like you know, there's <laughs> there's some actual effort going into the production. Yeah. Um, the, the the Netflix Christmas film that I've seen uh, <laughs> at least had a, like a little bit more like production value, yeah, and and thought than yeah. the Hallmark pieces of crap that I've seen. And there are certain topics that Netflix movies will touch that Hallmark won't. For mm. example, are there gay characters? Um, I don't think in this one. I feel mm. like I've seen them in others, though. Because there's, no, there's no such thing as gay in the Hallmark universe. There's gay coded, but it's always a supporting character. So, you know, they're just yeah. sort of like vaguely coded as gay. Yeah. Mm. It's weird. Um, but uh, yeah, so Netflix handles things a bit more deftly, I would say. Also, I'd say Vanessa Hudge, especially if she's producing, she's a little bit higher caliber. Because it's you know higher production value, they probably have a little more money, so they can hire somebody like Vanessa Hudgens as opposed mm-hmm. to 
Alicia Vitt. Not to dump on Alicia Vitt, she's a, a fine actress. Mm. But Vanessa but Hudgens has a bit more, more clout, uh, I guess. With, with the younger power, demographic. Yeah. Like Netflix mm. is hitting a younger demographic yeah. with this, I think. Um You know who needs to make a Christmas movie? Harmony Kareen. Well yeah. I wanna see that. Christmas Breakers. Make a sequel. <laughs> We're going to go full Christmas in this small town in the middle of America. And you know what? I know Christmas was yesterday. We're just going to keep Christmas going. We're just going to keep Christmas going. We're going to make more gingerbread. You're a madman! Check out my shit! Dude, it's January 15th. Take down your lights. Christmas never ended around here. Christmas time forever. Love to see Christmas breakers. Make it happen, Hollywood. That's actually a really good idea. Um, okay, so that is it for Critically Acclaimed. Let's uh, let's run down the list. Because right. we reviewed a lot of movies. Uh, and we're going to go in reverse order. Uh, a, uh, the the night, night. The night before Christmas. Before Christmas. Um, again, we're operating on the sliding Christmas scale. <laughs> uh, this is actually pretty entertaining for a Christmas movie of its ilk. I'll give it a C All plus right. on that scale. All right. On that scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, as the documentary Citizen K is definitely a C plus. Very dense. Um, you know, it's skewed, but it's skewed against Putin, and it's kind of hard to argue with that, so <laughs> I'm just going to let that go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's highly informative, and if you are hearing about <coughs> all the political news coming out of Russia and everything like that, and you're a little well, hazy on it, well, and, this and, is a really great primer uh, on it, and, and it's the, very thrilling. the news that's coming out of Russia right into the American government. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, same thing with Scandalous. Um, it is a really interesting sort of angle with which to, dis- to watch the... Um, self-annihilation of journalism uh, in pursuit of capitalistic success. It's very mm. interesting. Uh, let's talk about Ford v. Ferrari. Ford v. Ferrari is a C. It is, it is totally enjoyable. It's the kind of film you can take your parents to go see over the Christmas break. Yeah, uh, Everyone will have a good time. And you'll, not re- you'll learn a little bit about the history of motor trends. Um, oh, but I f- otherwise, you won't get a whole lot of like spiritual edification. I, I forgot to mention, if anyone's new, uh, our scale is from C minus to yeah. C plus, yeah. so these aren't all terrible grades. Uh, C minus is below average. C is average. C plus is above average, which could mean anything yeah. from good to great. Yeah. Uh, Waves is a C minus movie with C plus performances. Yeah, I, I I agree. I was really trying to get into Waves, and I just could not. So it, yeah, it's a C minus for me too. Uh, Dark Waters. Uh, I'm going to go this one a high. See, I think it's effectively right. told, but it just didn't grab me enough to, I mm. think, make it easy to recommend to people. And I think it needs mm. to be seen by as many people as possible. And that's probably a slight miscalculation. Okay, I, th- I think um, I think Todd Haynes approached the material correctly. I think it's engaging in a, a panicked sort of way. I'm going to give it a C plus. Fair enough. Not one of the best of the year, but I think it's really quite good. I, I think it's good. It's mm-hmm. not enough to give it a confident recommendation. Uh, a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Uh, that's a C. Okay. I mean, Fred Rogers is is a fascinating enough character, and there's going to be enough emotional just seeing him do his thing that you're going to be engaged. Yeah. But uh, yeah, they. I think they just sort of didn't choose the right lead character. That's a shame. Uh, Klaus, the Netflix animated movie, big. Big C plus. Absolutely, it's a C plus. Please I, watch it. It's this kind is, of the this, winner of the week. This really. is one I'm going to want to like buy on home video and like yeah. watch repeatedly. It's so mm-hmm. good if they if they release it on home video, mm-hmm. Netflix. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's an excellent animated movie. Uh, possibly the best animated kids friendly movie of the year. Like it's really mm-hmm. great. Uh, and then Frozen Two. Speaking of animated mm-hmm. kid friendly movies, uh, is a C. 
Okay. Yeah. It's the, fine. That, the, the Lost in the Woods song is amazing. The rest okay. of the movie is pretty good. Okay, fair enough. Um, so that is it for Critically Acclaimed. We'll be back uh, next week after the Thanksgiving holiday with reviews of a ton of stuff, uh, but most particularly Knives Out, the new Ryan Johnson film, and Queen and Slim, the uh, new uh, contemporary Bonnie mm. and Clyde type story. Uh, and isn't Hidden Life coming out next week? Or I think, oh, I, no, think I, I think I pushed back December, a week. Yeah. I think I pushed back a week. Right. Uh, but uh, yeah, December is coming. We have a ton of new movies coming out in the next month. And mm. also at the end of December, we will be doing not just our podcasts for the best and worst movies of 2019, but we will also be doing our podcasts uh, for the best and worst movies of the decade. Yep. Uh, which I'm very excited to share with you. I'm that, also uh, that's how it roll. I'm writing some articles about various uh, mm-hmm. best so and sos of the decade yeah. for various publications. And over at criticallyacclaimed.net, I'll probably mm-hmm. um, I can't I don't think I'll get asked to do this for another publication. I'll probably do at least the top 25 films of the decade over there at some yeah, point. Yeah. Um, so, I'll, 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 yeah, I'll be coming yeah. up with a bunch because it's for, for year and for decade. Yeah, because the top ten for a whole decade is nuts. There's so many great movies <laughs> this last decade. It's been a really good decade for movies. Uh, it's it's been a very it's been a varied decade compared to the 2000s. Talk, we talk about sort of how this decade has been overrun by a very particular type of blockbuster, and you know Marvel and Disney have been sort of dominating the conversation. But if you've been paying attention, there's a lot of really interesting things coming from all angles. Yeah, if you're able to cut through a lot of that noise, mm, it's been a particularly good decade for horror. I feel, okay. but anyway, uh, anyway, so that's all coming up uh, in the near future. Please stick around the critically acclaimed network. Mm. We'll have another letters episode coming at you soon. Mm. We have a new episode of Cancelled. Too soon. We're reviewing the recently canceled series Whiskey Cavalier. Uh, we've got uh, more stuff coming on the Cancel Too Soon Network's Patreon page, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Mm-hmm. I think I said Cancel Too Soon Network in there somewhere. Yeah, critically it, acclaimed it's network. the critically acclaimed network. Um, we've got bonus episodes of the Cancel Too Soon monthly movie. We got two of those are going to be doing in the next couple of days. Very excited mm-hmm. about that. Uh, we've got other stuff coming as well. It's all very, 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 very fun. So thank you, everyone. Especially thank you to our Patreon supporters. Follow us on Twitter, at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And never forget, everyone's a critic. I want to go to the Midnight Show. I'm sorry, what?